Ladies and gentlemen, what's good, y'all? It's Chris Gary, it's Andrew Benjamin. You tuned in to yet another edition of We Are Rising Podcast, your source for all things about kakitogi, kickboxing, MMA, and just basically all things about the Rising Fighting Federation and all forms of Japanese combat sports leagues. If you want to check us out on Twitter, you can do so. I'm on Twitter at ChrisGary92. Andrew's on Twitter at Avenger1. And the show Twitter at We Are Rising Pod. W E A R E R I D I N P O D all in one word. We'll give out the rest of the plugs later. But I think, Andrew, we got a special guest to talk about some special things. Absolutely. Absolutely, Christian. With us today, we have, I would almost call him an enigma. But he always present on J MMA social media, J Kick, or for all of your Japanese combat sports stuff. With us today, we have I consider one of the top experts in Japanese kickboxing and also Takaru's number one fan. With us, we have Karev underscore fan who will be talking with us today about the K1 K Festa three super show that just happened at this famous Saitama Super Arena on Saturday. And Karev fan, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate you taking your time out today. Nah, thanks for having me on. It's always been, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a dream, but like a really, really strong hope of mine that I get to uh, speak on one of these podcasts with you guys. So, uh, you know, uh, with the city shut down, I don't have much better to do. So glad to be on. Oh, well. Understood, understood. And can you talk a little bit more about yourself before we get into this fight card yeah 
So I am basically just a fan of Japanese kickboxing, which would be pretty unremarkable if not for the fact that there's probably only like 20, 30 people that speak English in the world that actually uh, follows that stuff. Uh, originally was raised in Japan where I was doing a bit of karate and then amateur kickboxing on the side. Um, and then, you know, while I was there, right, uh, that was in the boom of the uh, big K-1 period. So this is like, uh, you know, early 2000s to late 2000s and everything. Uh, people were doing a lot of uh, kickboxing shows on TV. I wanted to speak about that, but like there was basically no Japanese internet for uh, Kukdugi news at all, so to speak. So by coincidence, I ended up uh, following this sport on like the English forums and stuff. And, and basically, it's just been like 15 years or so of something of me uh, just watching this stuff live and then translating things from Japanese, uh, sharing fight cards and fight news and things like that. So I've just been like a uh, pesky bug that's been flying around this sport and uh, really glad to speak with you guys on this. But no doubt, your presence has, I think, has definitely created more awareness for Japanese kickboxing, uh, especially, you know, for people who don't know how to tread that water of finding those fights or wa watching them. You've opened up a door, I think, for much more fans to get more attuned and basically accessible to it. And for that, I really applaud you for for basically you, you doing it on your free time and willing to do it for 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 people worldwide who uh, who uh, follow follow you on social media and all that stuff. Thank you so much for all that all that you do. I'm glad that you say that. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, especially, like, back in 2015 or something when, uh, you know, Ryzen was just kicking back up and K1 was kicking back up. Uh, you know, that's when I really started getting heavy into this Twitter and other uh, social media things. But there were basically nobody uh, speaking English online that was even, like, porting over fight cards for these events that had 10,000, 20,000 people on it. Probably less so for Ryzen, but a lot more so, especially for K1. Uh, you know, people weren't following it that much, and I'm really glad to see that, you know, right now there's folks like you out there that's creating great content and following week to week, and, you know, it's become a little nice sudden shit of its own. So, the hopefully, better times ahead of us. The one thing I do kind of regret is that, is, well, because initially when we started, I didn't know that there was so much outside of Ryzen when Ryzen first started. So, unfortunately... Well, actually, Andrew, you probably might not have known. I mean, I have, but I was just more focused on the fact that there weren't many people picking up on it, or there weren't, like, outlets for, you know, fans outside of Japan to, you know, follow this stuff. Oh, yes, and that's why we started this, but I feel bad that we have Ryzen in the title when there was just so much... So that's one of my like big regrets of like ah fuck if I could go back in time and be like like just something more general I would I would absolutely do it but I don't know I might be too late at this point unfortunately. Yeah, but Andrew, Andrew, people who listen to this damn podcast realize that we're more than just talking about the Rise and Fight Federation. I mean, we know they have six events a year at different time, but most of the time is spent. You know, following fighters from outside the organization and following things from, you know, other promotions, basically. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And speaking of other promotions, we are here to talk about 
K1's biggest show of the year, at least so far, and probably will be, the K-Festa 3 show from the famous Saitama Super Arena, which just happened this past Saturday uh, for us, Saturday night for us here in the United States, but uh, I believe it was Sunday in Japan, if I'm correct, Christian, right? Uh, yeah, it was Sunday, March 22nd, or for us, prime time, March 21st, late prime time, actually. Yes, and uh, the big, the I guess the obviously the, the elephant in the room is so obviously there's this coronavirus thing going around the world, including Japan, and so I'm gonna get this out of the way first. And Kyrie fan, I want to ask, do you think it was smart of them to have this show despite what was going on in Japan at the current time? Yeah, you know, <laughs> there's no way for me to say yes to that question without sounding like a colossal douchebag. <laughs> I think the thing I can say is, if you consider the level of unmitigated catastrophe this could have ended up into, this has not quite been to that degree at this moment. Like, uh, it's really hard to understate just how big of a deal this was. Like, you know, K-1 came back, like, you know, four or five years ago. Nobody on national TV was talking about it at all. And then the moment this event goes down and people start noticing that there's, like, a, you know, planned to be 10,000 uh, audience event going down in Saitama under all this nonsense, like, it became national news. Like, the uh, governor of the prefecture of Saitama literally went to the stadium, like, in an emergency crisis mode. Uh, people on Twitter, like like congressmen, were tweeting about the policy implications of this and that. And, you know, like, it got a huge amount of infamy. More headline coverage than even, like, the average Ryzen show, which is broadcast in front of millions. And, obviously, that's not all great coverage. Mm -hmm. And there's even talk about, you know, implementing specific policy uh, as a fallout from this. Like you know, actually codify the fact that events above a certain size are canceled. I think Tokyo is talking about the lockdown potentially coming in soon. Um, so there is fallout. And it's, you know, it's uh, if you consider the amount of risk that these guys are taking, if they were to even cause a single case, like that can mean bankruptcy, right? Like that you don't really come back from if you get blamed uh, as an epicenter of the coronavirus. Uh, to our relief, that has not been reported as of yet, uh, even though, uh, you know, these symptoms are typically, uh, you know, they have a lag time, right? So we might hear differently in like a week or two. So it hasn't gone to that extent yet. And I think the uh, two things that you have to consider here, if you were to think about why would K1 go through with this, is what? You know, the financial implications of skipping on an event like this is basically, you know, risking a tango with uh, bankruptcy if you're one of these fight promotions back in Japan. Because, you know, these uh, events hold like four or five, uh, sorry, these promotions hold like four or five events a year. Like, Ryzen's post, uh, postponing the idea of cancellation at this point because, like, they know if they have to skip on the next event, it's going to be a really tough financial year. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, canceling an event like this and trying to recoup costs at the last moment, like, that's going to be really difficult. So that's one thing. Like, they basically had a gun held to their head. 
the other thing is um, basically the government itself was issuing the order for self-restraint to K1. So they were telling K1 that, hey, if you can care about the public good, I hope that you actually don't go off and do with this. Which, you know, as you can tell from the verbiage, there is a pretty sissy move on the government's front, right? Mm. They weren't telling them to cease and desist. They weren't telling them, okay, we order you to cancel this event. We're going to compensate you uh, for this last-minute cancellation, but you can't do it. They were just like, okay, we told them that they shouldn't, and if they go off and do it, then it's on them. So, you know, there's actually been some level of sympathy for that. Like, actual politicians are trying to step in and defend K-1 on this at this front. So it's not all universal, you know, um, con condemnation. Actually, uh, Genki Sudo, if you guys are aware of him, he was like a big mm. K-1 hero star back in the day. Uh, like he became congressman. Genki Sudo. Yeah. So he became a congressman or like a parliamentary member, and he basically put out a tweet defending this. So you know, there's been some level of support. So at this point, all I can say is it hasn't been quite as catastrophic as it could have been. Uh, and I understand why they did it. It was still a really, really uh, tough iceberg to sail past. And I don't know if it meant, uh, went past it yet. You ever see the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original? Yeah. The response by the Japanese government was kind of, remember at the very end of the movie when Mike TV is obviously going to screw shit up in that little uh in the little TV room and Willy Wonka is going no please stop don't that that, that sounded like kind of like how the Japanese government was responding it's like no please stop don't don't put on the show without any sort of like actual without any actual toughness I guess you could say behind their words because I'm pretty sure if they wanted to, they could just come in and say, nope, you're not running this show at all. Yep. Pack up and go home. But they clearly didn't for, for whatever reason. I'm, I'm not going to speculate on why. We've heard, I know that uh, one of the former prime ministers of Japan kind of put a, a kind of announced, said something about, I, I think, I think, I think basically they, uh, why, my personal belief is that they wanted to make things seem good in the case of the Olympics. Happened to yeah. to st to stick around and as it, it, it suddenly as soon as Olympics say nope uh, the IOC said we're we're canceling you know suddenly there's just a barrage of shows just being canceled and no, no open arena no empty arena so kind of think that kind of goes hand in hand with why the Japanese government was very lackadaisical and and not so much tough in shutting the show down I don't know if you want to agree with that or or. Think that... Yeah, there's been a lot of people, you know, accusing them of that as well. Like, uh, the day after this event was supposed to go down, I think the uh, torch was supposed to land in Japan, and they were supposed to have a huge procession ceremony around it. Like, that was supposed to be like a 40,000, 50,000-person event that they hadn't formally, you know, canceled or changed at that point. I think they ended up doing a no-audience thing with no contact. Yeah, I think, it was, like, I think it was closed doors, if I remember correctly. I think they didn't yeah. even, like, have press or anything. It was just, like... We're lighting this torch where nobody can see it, which is kind of yeah. defeats the whole purpose of uh, lighting the torch for the Olympics, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, uh, K1 got off lucky so far, you know. It but do you, just... curious to know, do you, given, you know, do you think this will have a, a positive or negative effect 
for K1 in the future? Let's just say if they're, you know, not, not, uh, well, let's, I'm just going to put it generally. Do you think that, and do you think K1's going to be hurt by, by this in the future for what they did, or is it kind of just going to be forgotten? Uh, what do you think? I think if they do get hurt from this, it's going to be from the fact that potentially large venues are going to deny them access to uh, stadiums going forward. So I'd be curious to see whether they can secure Saitama Super Arena again next year. Uh, I think Saitama's a bit too close for them to be comfortable, but they haven't canceled their other shows in other cities yet, so maybe they can still use Yokohama and Fukuoka and what have you. Um, I think besides that, uh, there were, you know, financially speaking, positives of doing this, right? Like There were a whole lot of fighters that were on this card saying, you know, if this event didn't go down, I wouldn't have had a paycheck for the next three months, and now I can get back, so thank you. Also, roundaboutly, I, I, this is not an insult to K1, but this was probably the most talked-about K1 show I can remember since I started following online, just like the whole J, uh, Japanese uh, uh, Kabutogi uh, bubble. Basically, the J thing. Yeah, if, I felt like this was both both uh, was was people outside were interested and people inside were obviously interested. Like it kind of got a little bit of both, just because it was the. I think also by process of elimination, this show was the only show that was running oh, that yeah. weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that like MMA fighting put up like an article about uh, top K Fessa KOs or something. It's like when's the last yeah. that's a- even New York Times even covered uh, the the show. I don't know if you saw the article, but I think their Japanese correspondent as well said that uh, what was well, talking about. There, it's a lone wolf show going up in Japan. Um, yeah. So yeah, this it got coverage in in a unique, uh, definitely in a u- unique way, and also under unique circumstances. So I can't fault them for the amount of publicity they got. I mean, hopefully it doesn't hurt them. You know, if we find out, you know, what, like two weeks later, oh, Takaru has 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 coronavirus. Oh boy, you know. Uh, it's fine. He only has deafness. Oh okay. <laughs> Actually, I think I think that a bunch of the fires did get tested. I heard. I, I heard. I think right after the show, I th- I I heard uh, one I mean, of the one uh, of the fires got what? I heard that one of the fires did get tested for coronavirus and was found negative. Uh, yeah. uh, I think they were supposed to have been doing testing for the uh, for the uh, fires, and the other thing is that everyone who attended the show had to give them you know their name and address and everything, so that if there are follow-ups, um, you know, they can link it back to the event. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, speaking of the event, what is talk about this show, uh, KFSA? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's 25 <laughs> fights. Do you talk of, I mean, speaking of the show, there are 25 fights on this card, but do you want to start off by talking about the four-fight prelims or the other 25 sure. fights on the card? Sure, sure. Uh, I just want to say, though, uh, this was on Abima TV, and I watched a little bit live on Abima and made the mistake of thinking it would be archived the next day. And boy, I got, uh, I'm never making that mistake again. Cause then yeah, I had, they are archived, but it's behind the paywall. Oh. You have to do deal lockering, yeah. Yeah. Luckily though. Before we even get to talking about this card, I just have to ask, do you think that the, do you think that the rest of the world is kind of cut off from K1 because of the fact that it only shows on Abima? And the only way you have to watch is via a Japanese VPN. Oh yeah, obviously, right? 
I mean, uh, K1 almost doesn't pre pretend we don't exist. Like, um, and I think people have hypothesized on the reason for that. Like, if you follow K1's history and where the brand rights uh, reside at this point, um, it is possible that K1 Japan just doesn't have the right to really go out and pursue market opportunities outside of the country. Or it could just be this weird thing that K1 Japan does because that's what K1 Japan does. And, you know, they have their quirks and somehow they keep failing into success. So, I'll say yeah. they, they definitely, you know, left a lot of money on the table. I think if they had gone on, like, fight or, you know, done something that international audiences could pay to watch or something along those lines, I think they would have gotten a good amount of people to, to pay and watch since they, were, they had no competition that night. Yeah. They, they, I mean, I, you know that, like, Rise does its shows on Fight, right? And they're, like, maybe half the size of that, so... Yeah, well, uh, they, they did they did the um, the GP last year. I don't know if they did any other shows, and I think the GP was supposed to be again this year, but unfortunately, that won't be happening because Rise canceled all their shows as well. Uh, yeah, but, it, so, it might get back to June. If, yeah. if, if you know anybody who works at uh, K1, uh, Karev, uh, let them know that American fans will pay to watch, especially now since we have nothing to watch at all when it comes <laughs> to combat sports. They, they missed yeah. the perfect opportunity to get to get us, and they fucked it all up in that, in that respect, in my personal opinion. But yeah, so let's talk about the first four premium matches, which were pretty awesome. I'm just going to go over them briefly because, like I said, there was 25 matches, and it actually took me three days oh, to watch. I'm just gonna only read the results, so okay. if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, sure. But before you do, Chris, I just want to say this show took me three days to watch. I watched the entire yeah. thing on that chi on that Chinese website, whatever it's called, uh, Live QQ yeah. or, or whatever. And I didn't. I, I th my theory behind this is that they they made the show so long because in case if anybody did have Corona by a time that the show would have started and ended. Coronavirus would be totally out of their system by the by the time the show ended. That's my theory. And yeah, I mean, twenty-five by eight hours. Uh, we can get going on the prelims if you want, but there's also a lot of like business reasons why they do this thing of drawing out events and just stacking everyone on the card. Oh sure, let's we'll talk about the prelims first, then we'll get into that. But yeah, Christian, go ahead. Uh, read the uh okay. the four prelims. Okay, let's go ahead and get these prelims out of the way. Prelim number one, the 121-pound matchup, Rira defeated Kyokin Jin via TKO. Head kick, 1 minute 57 seconds of round number one. Fight two, 138-pound prelim. Oh, wait, actually, let me read the records as well. Rira moves to 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. Kyoku, no, Kyokin Jin drops to 12, I mean, drops to 1-1. One See, I'm stumbling over this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to do this shit rapid fire. 138-pound <laughs> prelim. Hikaru Hasumi defeated Hisaki Higashimoto via TKO. Third round, 2 minutes, 53 seconds. Hasumi improves to 4-2. Higashimoto drops to 12-15 overall. 121-pound prelim. Riyamu defeated Ryuto via unanimous decision after three three-minute rounds. Riyamu improves to an undefeated 6-0. Ryoto, I mean, Ryuto drops to 4-9-2. And in the final prelim, Shinya Uemura and Seiya Tanigawa fought to a majority draw in a 198-pound contest. Uemura drops to 10-10-1. 
Tanigawa for three and one. But, you know, Andrew was going to ask this. I'll probably ask this myself. Why do they stack all these fighters on this card to make way for the full fight free? I mean, to make way for these prelims that nobody can watch. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, right? If you consider where K1 makes its money, they probably make a bit of money off of the screens because they have Abema uh, sponsoring them as a major partner, and they're one of the top content providers for them. But the vast majority of where the money is coming from is from ticket sales, and specifically the fact that they can stuff these events by having each fighter basically sell anywhere between 50 to 500 tickets themselves by hand. So... Mm -hmm. If you move up from a place where you're trying to fill like 7,000, 8,000 uh, people in like one of the annex arenas or in like what used to be the Yogi to moving up to Saitama Super Arena with 17,000, uh, they're not going to get like casual fans to come in and watch K1. Like there's no marketing behind this product. Um, what they have to do is have a lot more fighters on the cards going around selling their uh, friends' uh, tickets and stuff. So, you know, the more stacked these cards become, the more people they put on it. And not only that, like, uh, if you look at, like, the rankings on the Dean um, they track, basically, view counts. Uh, but to my knowledge, those aren't live viewers, but those are counted views. So I think this event got, like, 4.1 million views or something. The longer you can stretch out these uh, events, not only is that more ads that you can be throwing in as a, con uh, as a programmer, uh, if you were a Bema, but you can also be uh, basically drawing out the stream longer and longer so that more people flip to it and get counted on the cumulative views and the, uh, closer to the top that you go. So a lot of business reasons mm -hmm. to do this. I know like uh, Knockout, like they're another kickboxing promotion in Japan. They wanted to basically do events that are only like five people, uh, sorry, five fights each. Because that's basically, you know, max concentration for like a 90-minute to two-hour TV broadcast. And they wanted to go more that way. And then they were also not having their fans, uh, their fighters sell tickets, uh, which is a, you know, more fan-friendly model. But they also couldn't fill arenas. And they're downscaling now. So every weird thing that K1 does, it has a reason. It's just sometimes you just can't figure it out. I also just want to reiterate as well, uh, while Christian is reading the records, uh, they are not the uh, complete, I believe. You know, kickboxing records are always just, just generally wonky. So whether you see them on SureDog or Tapology, don't take those records as, uh, as the whole truth. They'll, they probably have had a lot more fights, especially when we get to Thai guys who have had like 95 fights. Just quickly, uh, so Christian, did you happen to see any of the prelims by any chance? No, I'm just as oblivious to them as you are. I'm reading the results off of not only Topology, but Mike Skite at the Body Lock. Gotcha. Um, uh, Karev, I just want to quickly go over the prelims. Um, you saw all the prelims. I just want to make sure. I yep. Okay, so wasn't that a Rira opening match? Wasn't that kick that he did to Jin just like, wasn't it just a beautiful knockout? Yeah. Um, it's like the, uh, I think it's a second time in his young career that he got like a head kick knockout um, or maybe, I think he got like a spinning back kick down if you, or something in his first fight Christian to uh, let, so that you're not totally oblivious if you remember the Ryan Jimmo Anthony Paroche knockout or the Kevin Lee Gregor Gillespie knockout that's kind of what happened to Jen where he just kind of just like 
just got like kicked power kicked in the head and just fell backwards into the uh, turnbuckle and basically, was out. Basically, what you're trying to say is he turns into a contortionist dummy on impact. Almost. Yeah. It, it was almost, yeah, it was almost like a ragdoll physics. Thank God that the, the uh, turnbuckle was there. He would have, he would have gone, yeah, it would have been total ragdoll physics. Yeah, nobody tells the New York Times that, like, uh, Kyoken Jin is 16 years old and he, that was his second fight. Oh, I didn't even know. Oh, my God. I'm trying. Oh, I think. Okay. So since obviously only the names are, they only had the names in English, I wasn't paying attention to the numbers that much. Now I remember I saw a 16 and I told you, I can't believe I missed that. I missed that. Kyoken. Yeah. The first name, Kyoken, that's not actually his name. It's like a nickname. Mm -hmm. And he got it from this veteran kickboxer called uh, Kyoken Takeuchi. And he was supposed to come in and be his successor and, like, show off his hands and something. Uh, but, yeah, Rira is apparently, like, a Taekwondo champion, and apparently that works sometimes. Uh, the second fight, uh, Hikaru Hasumi versus Hisaki ha- uh, Higash- Higashimoto. Higashimoto. Um, so, apparently, I don't know either of them, but apparently Hisaki is a guy who wins and then loses, like, Either by knockout or like in the last round is that's the that's yeah. that's apparently what his gimmick is because I looked at his record and I'm like oh this is not the the first time he's been knocked out in the third round when I'm presuming that he where he I presume that he won that's basically what happened he's winning and then just gets knocked out. That's basically him. Um, he's a uh, sort of a you know sort of a melancholy case to be honest because uh, maybe like eight years ago he was part of like the youth Grand Prix in Crush and he was supposed to be one of those up and comers. And he knocked out Hiroya, I think. Um, so, you know, he was always supposed to be one of those big next big things, but his chin never held up and, you know, he's just uh, repeating KO wins and KO losses. Um, and this is probably on the tail end of his career at this point. I just also want to know, a lot of these kickboxers, um, a lot of them come from various gyms in Japan, but the one that I see is most prominent, other than, you know, Try Hard, uh, is the K1, K1's K own gym. And that's, I, I think, where Takaru also trains. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, so uh, K1 actually has, like, a chain of gyms. I think they might have, like, 12 or so. And this is sort of like a little rabbit hole in itself. But basically, when 2014 or something, when they were trying to get back up, they went out to all the major gyms in Japan and signed them up into this conglomerate of gym networks. So one of them, which was probably one of the best ones, was uh, K1, was uh, Team Dragon, K1 Team Dragon. And that was basically where Kinsaku Maida, who was probably one of the legend kickboxers in Japan, and also a legendary trainer. He trained guys like Masato, uh, Kohi, and a uh, hundred others. Like, that's where he had his team. And he raised Tokuru, he raised uh, the Rabe brothers, he raised Yamazaki, Teruaki. And basically, they had this big falling out with him, and they went off, this Cape, you know, star uh, Sable, went off and founded uh, K1 Team Crest. So, Yoshimoto is a part of that. Um, and basically, maybe like half the other guys on this card are a part of that as well. Yeah, I, I know. Is it kind of like... One has their own gym of uh, basically. Does K one give try to like push the guys in the K one gym, kind of like how one tries to push the people in the evolve camp? Oh yeah, it's like a pyramid. I mean, they call it a pyramid themselves. Uh, not everybody. Like I know that there are people who belong in the Holden K one gym in the headquarters that 
go off and do uh, fights and other promotions. Uh, but basically, if you're joining a K1 gym in the first place, it's because you want to be part of this pyramid, you know, starting from Chaos, going up to Crash, and then uh, finishing off in K1. So, you know, it's like its own little uh, isolated country that within itself that's completely separate from the kickboxing world. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, the next match was Ryamu versus uh, beating uh, Ryuto by unanimous uh, decision. I'll be honest. Don't remember that much about this fight, because I have no notes on it, so I don't know if anything really happened prominent. Anything that you want to say, Karev, about that match? Um, it was a fine fight. I think out of the prelim fighters, Riyamu is probably the best. Um, but, you know, it was basically like a clean three-rounded decision for him. Mm-hmm. And now the next match, probably the most unique match on this entire card, I thought, uh, the uh, Shinya Yurimura Seiya Tanigawa majority draw. Um, basically, two 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 fat guys kickboxing and like the thing. Why I thought it was unique because they stood out among like everybody else in this card. Every you know you had like one hundred fifty pound fighters, one hundred twenty pound fighters. Um, I think yeah, I think the uh you had two hundred five, but these guys looked like they kind of looked like ballroom brawlers more than actual oh. fighters. Yeah, it's a it's a really weird one. Um, one of them, Tanigawa, he's actually like a Shinsei Karate champion, all national champion, and it was his debut in kickboxing. So I think they were trying to get him a body. Um, but uh, the guy he was facing, Guerrero, he is literally, I think, you know, uh, pass obesity line. I think he's like 168 centimeters. He's like, what is it, like five six, five five? Or something like that, but he weighs like 90 kilos, 95 kilos. So, you know, like, he's just this blob that people just can't hurt because he doesn't feel body blows for some reason. <laughs> and, you know, Tani is coming in from karate, so he can only do a body blows. And it's just like two guys neutralizing each other. But it was a fun fight. I, I was when I saw these two coming. I'm like, oh no, it's gonna be that type of fight. But no, it was. I don't know if I agree with the draw, the majority draw though. Um, I don't know. I kind of thought that Tani Gawa may have won in the end. Uh, I could be entirely. I don't know exactly K1 how they precisely judge. Do you happen to know how the how the K1 judges how they score cards by any chance? Correct. I can tell you how they tell you they score cards. Okay, that's fair enough. Which is supposed to be damage, uh, aggression, and then uh, I think those are the big ones. Uh, and then you're not necessarily supposed to be penalized for um, you know uh, aggressive or passive stance and uh, positioning. Uh, but that's not how they actually judge cards. Typically, they tend to give points more to the person that's coming forward and to the person that's trying to land head blows, whether they actually land or not. There used to be a joke in, you know, K1 that, uh, judging that middle kicks don't count, because, uh, like, that's basically all that counts in Muay Thai. Gotcha. Uh, by, by the way, uh, also, you referenced Masada before. Uh, he was one of five, uh, I think one of six commentators on this show. Yeah. I, I, I lost count, because I thought, like, okay, because they're bringing the rapper guy in later, and I'm just, I lost total total my brain shut down at how many commentators were on this show because i saw also saw the little the little blurb come up that shows like you know who the color commentators are and all that stuff and i and i think i counted six names and i couldn't believe like basically that. it was like a romper room of people trying to chop 
Yeah, I, I eventually just tuned out the commentary because I was just like, oh, I don't know who's talking and all this stuff. But does K1 tend to have this many commentators, or is this just for a K-Festa thing? And how often do they get, like, Masato? Or... Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. They uh, had a couple surprises for the commentary, so to speak. Typically, they have a pretty steady roster, which is, like, one girl, one comedian guy who's been with K1 for, like, 30 years, and... Masato, who's the only person who knows what he's talking about. Uh, but for this one, they brought on this uh, pro baseball guy who used to be the color commentator for K1 back when uh, they were on national TV. So, you know, it was like a K-Festa were returning to her glory days sort of thing. And then they also got uh, Sato Yoshihiro, who was basically uh, Masato's major rival when they were on the kickboxing ring. And, you know, they had them commentating side by side and poking fun at each other. So it was a pretty, you know, stacked, uh, uh, what's my comment? When there's six people, though, like, obviously, I, can you understand everything that's going on when it's, when there's six or five people just talking all once about what's going on and all that stuff? Can you, can you concentrate when you hear all that stuff, or do you just tune it all out? Well, the trick is to only listen to Masada, because he's <laughs> the only one that knows what's going on. Masada's <laughs> commentary, by the way, is like the best commentary in the world. You just need to know Japanese to understand it. Like, he would literally predict things that are going to happen in the fight, like, 10 seconds before it actually happened. He's going to be like, oh, well, he's going to get laid out by a high kick. And then it happens, like, 10 seconds later. And he just keeps doing that at every, at every event. So what about, well, why did they yeah, have the, this rap? The truth, Andrew, hmm? I mean, to tell you the truth, there's some people that can't even understand what's going on with three people commentating. No, I can't. I don't understand what six people commentate. I'm one of the people who, two people, no more. I cannot, I cannot take three voices just going in my ear, one ear out the other. I just, and just hearing like five or six, it's just like, wow, my brain would probably just melt. But uh, who was this rapper guy who they had come in the middle of the show, uh, the second intermission? Uh, yeah, that's not a rapper. Uh, that guy is uh, Ashizawa Yusei. He doesn't look like it, but he actually used to be a K1 fighter like a year ago. And he's sort of like this uh, notorious troll figure in Japan. Like, you know, he was basically just flopping around, playing around, somehow managing to win or survive ranked fights. And basically, one day he decided he's going to quit to become a rapper. Uh, so, you know, he spent like the last year fooling around and popping up on uh, K1 reality TV shows and what have you, and you know, this was supposed to his supposed to be his big comeback to uh, the K1 organization, and now he's petitioning for a fight. So you know, they just have these weird things going on just because it's sort of like Japanese TV, you know. I got you. And before we get into the uh, the main card, Christian, I just want to say so. Right after the intermission of the prelims, there was this big epic orchestral introduction of I think it was a K1 theme that they were playing. Uh, yeah. Is that something that K that you normally have at K Festa, or is this just something that they did for this show, Karev? I mean, uh, come to think of it, if you're probably thinking about that. Didn't K One back in the day used to do introductions like that? Yeah, like uh, you know, back when they were on national TV, right? Like uh, they were a lot, you know, bigger on the theatrics. Like they would have like giant crane machines carrying people from corner to corner of the arena and have them like 
you know, wear garlands like they were a Roman emperor and something while they have a live orchestra playing. But, like, you know, the uh, that organization went bankrupt, obviously. Uh, and then this newer one that's hosting K1 Japan shows now, uh, they typically only do... They started from doing, like, shows in front of 400 people or something uh, in Shinjuku Face. So they are a lot more, you know, mindful of where they spend their money. Uh, and it's only on these big shows that they do anything like this at all. I know. I give them credit. I love the orchestra. I thought that was a really cool thing. Also, just to reiter reiterate as well, this K1 is not the same K1 that probably a lot of people are more familiar with, with all the heavyweight fights and Crow Cop and JLB. That's not the same K1. This is, I think it's an entirely different company that owns it, right? Yeah, so uh, I don't want to say they own it, but basically um, when old K1 died, right, uh, they also had a bunch of different subsidiaries and partners that they were working with. One of them was Rise, which was a kickboxing organization that got contacted by them because they uh, K1 needed to move down into lower weights, and they wanted Rise to produce 70 kilo fighters for them. And then another one of them was this big organization called uh, All Japan Kickboxing Federation, or AJKF. Uh, and then they were I working... I remember that promotion being the promotion where one of the Klitschko brothers got out his start. Yeah, and got knocked out. <laughs> anyway, that was supposed to be like its own you know, veteran promotion within the kickboxing world. Uh, but they basically tied up with K1 to do, like, K1 rules matches, and they call that event Crush. And then afterwards, when that organization went bankrupt, uh, the company that, you know, a new company got started up with the people from AJKF to do Crush shows. So that company went on to become a sword force in, Jap in Japanese kickboxing because everyone else was out. And then somehow those guys managed to tie up with an operating company that licensed the name of K1 because, you know, the rights of K1 are somewhere far overseas were lost in the crevices of bankruptcy court. So, you know, there's this one guy called uh, Mr. Kim who does this organization called K1 Global, which is basically a shell organization that hasn't done an event in like four years. And they basically seem to have licensed the rights to use a K1 name in Japan. Long story short, you know, it's this completely other guy that's doing these events. Um, and, you know, they sort of had an inferiority complex about the whole thing because uh, people keep questioning their legitimacy. When you say legitimacy, do you mean financial legitimacy? Or I, I, I don't want to speculate and bring up the... The kind of the why word is that uh, I think you kind of I don't know if you get the word I'm, I'm guessing, but do you mean by that? Well, I think it's the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people in Japan, even kickboxing fans, don't really recognize K1 Japan as being a successor to K1. Mm -hmm. They consider it to be basically this other kickboxing organization that just happened to get the rights to the name. Um, and, you know, you can agree or disagree with that, but basically, right now, in uh, Japanese kickboxing. There's been this civil war that's been going on for four or five years, and you know it's basically K1 Japan versus everyone else. And you know, Rise is probably the other big name, but uh, 
you know, everyone takes all the chances they can get to uh, make jabs uh, at K1 Japan's legitimacy. <laughs> gotcha. Well, but with that being said, Christian, let's start with the first fight, which was a reserve bout in that 154-pound tournament that they uh, that K1 had that night. Ah, uh, yes. We kick off the con with talking about the 154-pound Grand Prix and the tournament reserve fight that happened. Daisuke Fujimura defeated Kotetsu via unanimous decision. Kotetsu dropped to 13 and 16 overall, according to the body lock. Fujimura dropped to 12, 5 and 1, according to the body lock. Now, did y'all see anything interesting in? Did y'all see anything interesting in this reserve fight? Yeah, Karev, I'll, I'll I'll let you speak on that. I was eh, it was a fight for me. <laughs> reserve fight. Uh, with Fujimura and Kotetsu. Yes. Sorry, I thought you was Kimura for a sec. Um, it's okay, uh, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, Kotetsu is sort of on the downside. He's a guy that can hit hard, but has trouble hitting them. He retired one of my favorite fighters, uh, Yuya Yamamoto. So, um, you know, sad to see that's happening with him, but... Uh, yeah, these two guys probably weren't going that far, even if they were in the main uh, tournament. I when I saw Kotetsu, uh, Kotetsu come up, I was like, "Oh, Kotetsu book!" Oh no, not that one. Totally nah, different. <laughs> Though actually, I think the same weight class, I I believe. Um, lightweight, uh, lightweight, featherweight, whatever um, they call yeah. it in, in one. So what a coincidence that the two Kotetsus are in the same weight class. But uh, yeah, you know, this to me was just a fight. It existed. It was a good fight. You know. It was good. Nothing else to say out of out of the 100 fights that they had on this show. Next fight, though, we got to talk about because Minoru Kimura is awesome, and I'm gonna let you take over, Christian, with the uh, first uh, first round of the uh, Grand Prix. Okay, of course. We now go into the 154 Grand. I'm sorry. It's hard for me to try and get these results out when I'm completely tongue tied. <laughs> Anyways, we. Kick off the 154-pound Grand Prix quarterfinals as Philip Minoru Kimura, who many people may remember as the guy who got knocked out by Charles Felony Bennett in seven seconds in the Rising Ring, <laughs> knocked out Taito Ono, another former Rising fighter, via two knockdown rule. Two minutes, ten seconds, round number one, TKO, and... Kimura moved on to the quarterfinals for a 33-9-1 record, while Kaito dropped out with an 8-3 overall record. And I have to ask two things. One, when it comes down to K-1, is it normally a rule for them to have a two-knockdown rule? And as far as Minoru, as far as Minoru Philip Kimura goes, I mean, a lot of people haven't seen him since he got his ass knocked out by Charles Felony Bennett, but how big of a superstar is he in the world of kickboxing compared to that one MMA fight? Uh, before you answer, Kravitz, I just want to correct you, Christian. This is not Kaito Ono. This is an entirely different Kaito. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. So he's, he's not like the shooting Kaito. Right, right, right. So not the shootboxer, obviously. No. But uh, yeah, Kravitz, I want to pass that question that Christian had uh, about the two knockdown rule and... Uh, 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 Kimura post hit the Ryzen knockout loss and just how how he's gone in K1 since then. 
Yeah, so uh, first one, so typically K1 has a three knockdown rule. They only make an exception when they're having a one-night Grand Prix. Uh, and oh. they basically need people to, you know, get out of the leagues early, if that makes sense. Like, it's a lot of incentive for, you know, a aggressive fighter to go out and try to uh, kill the other guy if they already knock him down once and know that they can uh, win the fight if they just get another knockdown. So, you know, it's a special rules thing, basically. So, Kimura, he's basically like a phoenix, right? Like, um, so, I think after he got knocked, so him getting knocked out by Crazy Horse is not, like, out of character for him at all. Like, that was happening for him in, like, this span where he got basically knocked out in the first round by, like, five different guys in a row. And then before that, he was on a killing streak where he was knocking out, like, you know, a bunch of guys in a row, too. And then just so happens that he basically got his life in order uh, after he went on that streak. He joined up with his old teammates uh, that were, you know, like guys like Yuda Kubo uh, that were running the separate gym. And then uh, he's basically managed to turn it around, I think. Uh, he's got, I think, he's probably went like 10-2 or something like that. After the uh, crazy horse fight, don't quote me on that. He's basically got a knockout in almost all the fights that he's participated in. Uh, he got like six knockouts in a row last year, and now he's got another three this year, and it's only March. So, you know, I think he's trying to extend that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other question, uh, so uh, what about for the, do they change the rules for the prelims? Is, is it is that two knockdown rule? I know you said it's only for tournaments uh, that are happening the same day. Do they ever do that for the prelim matches or for maybe the low-level boxers, the two-level no- uh, two-knockdown rule? So I know that Deep has different rules for, you know, their main the main card fights versus some of the lower card fights when it comes to um, rounds and all that stuff. Does K1 do that as well? I don't think so. I think the thing that they change with the prelim fights uh, is that they have draws because uh, they don't need to go into an extension round and uh, settle things uh, in a must-have decision. Uh, but typically, it's three knockdowns. Gotcha. And I, I, I'm super, the two knockdown rule, that was how the fight was scored? I thought it was because he got a body punch and then Kaito just kind of curled up, uh, unless they're counting that as a part of the knockdown. I just I thought it was just... A knockout by body punch. Do you happen to recall, uh, correct? Mm, not completely. You might be right. That's what I always thought. Uh, but anyway, it, 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 uh, no matter what, since they got uh, two knockdowns. Uh, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but uh, Kimura, let's just say, was a force to be reckoned with in this entire tournament. And uh, with that, Christian, I'm going to pass it off to you. The next uh, match in the uh, 154 pound tournament. Uh, okay, the second fight in the 154-pound Grand Prix was another two-knockdown rule finish. This time by this time by Elder Lopez, the native of Praia, Cafe Verde, fighting out at least in Portugal. TKO and Katsuya Jinbo via second-round TKO, three minutes forty-nine seconds. Elder Lopez moves on to his quarterfinal bout against Kimura. With a 19-6 overall record. Jimbo, 8-6-1. Now, as far as fighters from, you know, places like Cape Verde, I know that D'Angelo Marshall was one of those former fighters who fought the old K-1, but do you think that even though K-1, 
you know, this this new K one isn't really well known around the world because obviously of the restrictions that they are still able to get fighters from around the world because of the prestige that K one has. I think that helps a lot. Um, a lot of people come in thinking they're so funny for the same old K one organization. There's also a lot of fighters that come in and go to fight for Rise and think that they're fighting for K1. Um, <laughs> you know, K1 is just a huge transcendental name, right? It, K1 was bigger than the sport of kickboxing at one point. So, uh, it's a, you know, I think people like Chingis Alazov or Marat Gregorian, uh, two other winners of the 70 kg tournament before this, they probably wouldn't have bothered with, uh, you know, K1 Japan if they didn't know the K1 name. I also just want to say that Eder Lopez is probably uh, has the coolest team camp I've ever heard of, the Jazzy Fight Club. I <laughs> it's the it's the coolest nickname or the coolest name I've ever heard for a fight camp, Jazzy Fight Club. Um, but also, so I'm can you tell? Do you know any more about Eder Lopez by any chance, uh, Kareb? Was this his first K one stint, or uh, was he returning? Could you just tell us more about him? Yeah, it was his first stint in K1. So typically for a lot of these tournaments, K1 likes to structure its um, its tournaments so that they had like four Japanese people and four foreign people. And for the foreign uh, segment, they basically get a mix of people who are, you know, veterans and, uh, you know, well-known to the K1 audience and people who are new. Uh, I think, so Andrew Lopez, he won titles in places like ISKA and I think WKA before. Uh, so, you know, respectable titles, but he's not a huge name for uh, big promotions. I think he might have fought in Top King or something like that. I know he's beaten uh, John Wayne Parr. Uh, I forget where that took place. Uh, so he's basically a guy on the fringes, you know, shown to be competitive. But he was basically a new face. Gotcha. Anything you can say about his opponent, uh, Jimbo Katsuya? Jimbo is a veteran of Crush in K1. So basically his gimmick was that he used to be a street biker gangster type back in, uh, you know, back when he wasn't a fighter. And he comes in with that, uh, you know, biker gang purple suit and um, makes a deal about, you know, going in for uh, really aggressive attacks. But it turns out he's basically just like a pretty orthodox, fairly technical kickboxer. Um, and not someone that's super crazy or anything. Uh, he's on a three-fight losing streak now. Um, before this, he was fighting Yasuhiro Kido, which he got knocked out. And then he also went to a decision versus uh, Jordan Piquet, who was also on this card. Um, so he's been competent, but he's never been someone that's been able to really raise a top. Mm. Does K1, will they, if, do they care about win-loss records? Or is it kind of like the whole pride thing where it's you know hey you could lose 10 fights in a row but if you draw and you like actually try to fight they'll bring you like they'll bring you back yeah that's basically it i mean like uh, a lot of these guys have been on you know a losing streak coming into things and still got a major step up uh, you know people care more about whether you can go out and put on a good fight and call in fans so uh it's not really a sport like uh, the ufc is Gotcha. No, of course not. <laughs> yeah. I uh, want to go on to the next fight, Christian? Yes. 
The third quarterfinal fight in the 154-pound Grand Prix seen the golden hitman, Yasuhiro Kito, knocking out Slovakian and infusion veteran Milan Palet via second-round head kick knockout, 4 minutes and 54 seconds. Well, 1 minute and 54 seconds of round number two. <laughs> Yasuhiro Kito, the native of Isehara, Kanagawa, Japan, improves to 50-23-1 and one into the group finals. Palace, the native of Zelina, Slovakia, drops to 45-8-1. and one. First of all, any thoughts about, I mean, do you have any thoughts about Milan Palace and, you know, how he came about in K-1 and as far as Kito goes, I mean, how legendary is he? How timeless is he? Well, for one thing, Palace was supposed to win this one. Um, but he's mm-hmm. basically a uh, regular on the Eastern kickboxing circuit. He got his start in W5, and then he joined um, Infusion, and he was a ranked fighter there. And basically, people coming in from that era have a reputation for you know, being able to step up on the big leagues and still being able to uh, perform. So, you know... With uh, Nicholas Larson falling out of this tournament because of travel cancellation issues, it, it, it was basically supposed to be a clear field for him. But, uh, you know, Kido's a tricky guy. Guy's 37 years old. He is prop- he's the oldest fighter on their roster. He's been fighting since the old K1 days. Um, and he's just never quit. And even though he's never really been close to the top, he's made it on the old K1 tournaments up to, I think, final eight or something like 10, 12 years ago. Um, he's always been around that level which he can be dangerous against anyone and sometimes he gets blown out but if you have holes in the game he can uh, always show you out. Gotcha. Um, actually, it's funny you bring up the age. Uh, I was actually surprised by how old uh, Keto is. He's 37 years old which I was... Most of the people in this car were in their 20s Early thirties, but I think you, I think he was. You said he was the oldest person on their roster, right? Yeah, oldest guy on their roster. Oh wow! There's uh, been a couple other old K1 Max uh, Japanese fighters uh, that had tried their hand at K1. So Yoshihiro Sado was like a two-time Japan champion. He was a lot better than Kido. He went into K1 and basically got decapitated and basically had to retire a short while after. <laughs> uh, and then. The other guy, uh, Yuya Yamamoto, he got knocked out by Kotetsu, and he was a crush mainstay, but couldn't make it up to K1 Japan. Kido has somehow stayed around, even though he wasn't the guy I would have said was the best um, of the generation, uh, and he's just continued to be tricky. And I think he was going for like the uh, you know punches to the legs, something for either this fight or the fight after, but that's been the trick he's been doing for like 12 years, and people still keep falling for it. So, you know, um, good tricks for old dogs. I, I Was it him or was it Wajima who was doing... I, I remember I, it was either him or Wajima who was doing these knees to the legs. I never saw that before. Knees to the thighs, like the upper thigh. I never saw that ever done before, or at least if I... Uh, those are more conventional techniques. Uh, you see him a lot with, like, ranger fighters who might have done a bit of uh, karate. Um, so I think uh, Noiri, uh, he's on the card. Those are a favorite of his. Uh, Kohi, uh, Kohi Rurimaki, that used to be his big move. Okay, uh, and with that, uh, Christian, should we move on to the last 
part of the quarterfinals of the tournament. Yes, we move on to the final quarterfinal bout in the 154-pound Grand Prix, and you just mentioned him, Hiromi Wajima, TKO'd. I mean, Hiromi Wajima TKO'd a 100-plus fight veteran, Avatar Tormorsi, via third-round TKO leg kick, 40 seconds into round number three. Wajima moves on to his semifinal fight against Yasuhiro Kido with an 11-2 kickboxing record as the native of Gessen Kai Team Samurai would take on the native of Isehara Kanagawa, Japan. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. Wajima from Osaka, Gessen Kai Team Samurai, took on Yasuhiro Kido of Isehara in the semifinals. Meanwhile, Avatar Toromorsi Drops to an incredible 81, 43, and 3. My God. In professional kickboxing. I mean, and I'm pretty sure that includes the Muay Thai fights. Damn, that's a long ass record. Uh, yeah. It's, I, 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 whenever I saw these tie fighters just come out and they say, oh, 22 years old, their record, 95, 10, and 3. I'm just wondering, what what are they doing? What what are they doing? I just, I have this, how does somebody find the time to fight that many times at all? It's just crazy. Uh, are you at all connected or know anything about the Muay Thai scene, uh, Karev? Uh, there's definitely better people to um, refer to on that. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, I mean, Avatar is, um, he's been a guy who's shown up places like Top King and I think Max Fight. Um, so he's a guy that's on a bit more of the entertainment overseas side of the Muay Thai scene. And, uh, you know, he's a bit more action-y, so to speak, and uh, probably less of a distinguished record. Mm -hmm. um, he took this fight on like three days' notice, I think. Oh, so, I also want to bring up, that's a good point you brought up before. Like, five or six of these fights got changed as far as, like, maybe a week before to, like, I think two or three days before the actual show. Just because coronavirus... There was injuries, but also coronavirus fucked up a lot of the fights, uh, including oh, the, yeah. the co-main. And, uh, and also, uh, like, a bunch of the fighters couldn't make it. Matchy, we'll talk about the female fight, the lone female fight on this show. And I was actually surprised that they had the fighter from Italy actually come in. I didn't think that... I, when I saw that she was from Italy, I'm like, how the fuck did she escape? How did she escape <laughs> point lockdown? How does uh, she must have she must have like put on a beard or something and like like snuck into an airline because I, I thought that Italy was entirely under lockdown, but we'll talk about that later. But uh, this fight, I, the way that it ended, I could at first I didn't know like what happened. I thought he, it was a leg injury or something, but then apparently it looked like Wajima kicked him in the hip. I thought. But then it looked like it may have actually hit him in this in the like the the the, the liver. I think. Do you recall where the, the actual um, uh, impact connected, uh, Karev? I thought it was a leg kick. Let me. Yeah, it was a leg kick. But I I it looked like originally it was a leg kick to the, his thigh. I thought maybe oh no maybe he like just couldn't take like his leg just like went dead on him. But then when they replayed it, it looked like it hit him in the hip bone. And I thought I never, and I never saw somebody ever go down from a hip bone. But on another angle, it looked like it may have just grazed him right in the liver. Oof, that sounds tough. Um, but yeah, looking, uh, what out of all the the quarterfinal matches that they had, did you have any particular favorite? Uh, they all ended in finish. So, did you have a favorite finish among them, 
or w like what did you take away from all, from those um, from the quarterfinal matches? Well, my favorite was probably uh, Lopes uh, laying out Jimbo because I think you know both were showing some pretty competent kickboxing throughout. Uh, but when that ended, it was basically lights out, score one two. Um, I think the um, basically after the four fights here and after watching uh, Palace lose, you know. It basically became Kimura's uh, Grand Prix to win. And, you know, there's always a chance that something happens with him because he's such a wild card. But, uh, you know, it was basically a star-making performance uh, just kicking off in there. Mm-hmm. I got you. I got you. Um, was there anybody that, uh, I mean, that you were surprised? Uh, I mean, you can't, it, it sounds like maybe that you were surprised that uh, Palace lost, but was there anybody else that you were surprised that, like, managed to win and go forward or... Um, was it basically kind of predictable that those fights would go the way that they did? I think Kido was the only one that I uh, missed. Um, so Kaido versus Kimura, that could have been a bit more competitive. Kaido's a pretty heavy-handed guy himself. He's on a, he was on a two-fight knockout streak before this. and uh, He's also a veteran of uh, Outsider, which is that you know, street fight amateur MMA league they have. Uh, that the Sakura brothers came from. Um, so, you know, I had a faint hope that he might catch Kimura and make things interesting. But, yeah, I mean, mostly according to plan, except for the third one, they say. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and with that, uh, Christian, you want to move on to the next match, uh, a non-tournament match. Uh, yes, now we get into the super fight portion of the card. 134-pound super fight. That's seen you cap ah see, that's the problem with this. I'm always I mean, sometimes when it comes down to these foreign names I get very tongue tied. Especially when it comes down to the Japanese names. But still, point of the matter is Yutaka defeated Satoru Nayai via unanimous decision after three three minute rounds. Nayai improves to four and two. Kawahara drops to O and two in his maiden kickboxing voyage. Were there any takeaways from this fight that made you think that Nariai was a big star in this contest? I, I pass it off to you, Karev. I'm surprised uh, Nariai survived that fight, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, he's basically a guy that doesn't have a lot of kickboxing fundamentals, to be frank, uh, but he started his career off, got three knockouts in a row. And then he faced a crush champion called Shimano. And, you know, it basically looked like this one where, you know, uh, both of them were hurting each other and Nariai refused to go down. So he got a call up on this. Um, I think it was originally supposed to be a different fighter here. Uh, but basically, you know, it was a last minute uh, entry into a fight he probably didn't belong to. And I'm surprised he survived with only a 30 25 card against him. Oh yeah, Utaka basically worked him for three rounds. I think I think from uh, if I remember correctly, Nariai even walked in. He tried to do a flying knee, but wound up not blocking, not protecting his face, and wound up just getting like a, a sharp cross to, the, to getting knocked down right on right on his uh right. I think it may have been on his ass, but regardless, it was a knockdown. And yeah, yeah. It, it was a totally one-sided fight. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I'm not familiar with either of them, but Utaka certainly looked like. He was the more superior kickboxer between the two. For sure. Um, 
the anything about well, so now that the with Utaka winning, what what you expect to happen with him next? Uh, if anything, Karev. Uh, it's a tough thing for him because he's in a 60 uh, kilogram division, which is probably the most stacked division in K1 and Crush. So that's where Takeru and Leona and everyone else is. Um, so I think he has, what, five? Or he's 4-1 in his last five, I think, um, over the last year. So he's probably still two, three fights away from getting a Crush uh, title fight. Uh, but I could imagine that he faces off against uh, some of the other, you know, contenders in the field to try to get into a title fight uh, streak there. Uh, gotcha. So, but uh, I'm trying to remember if it happened during the, this. The, this was the second the time the second intermission happened. But a a J-pop girl band came out to uh, sing. Yeah. Do you remember that, Karev? Was it a girl band or was it a single girl? Was it a single girl? Um. Maybe oh wait okay I'm getting okay so deep jewels had the had had the J-pop band I'm getting those confused yes it was oh, a single okay, girl yeah. yes um because they have uh, Nanaka right yes yeah yeah they had the, the girls with the chainsaws the hockey mask come out so yeah I'm getting my two uh, things confused yeah who is this uh, who is the singer who came out and serenaded the audience <laughs> so that was the wife of one of the fighters that was fighting and. We can talk about that when we get to him, but the last set, the better. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So with that, Christian, let's go on to the next match. Uh, yes, let's go ahead and move on to another 130-something-pound super fight. As this time, it was the 138-pounders that got a chance to shine. As Hideaki Yamazaki knocked out Ipalu Telehima via, uh, let's see here, via TKO, straight right hand. Near the end of round number two, two minutes and 59 seconds to be more specific. Yamazaki improves to 32-8-1. Terashima drops to 4-1. Now, up until the knockout happened, did you really think that Yamazaki was going to go into this thinking, I'm not going to lose to this fucking undefeated nobody? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, Yamazaki's in an odd place. Because he's, uh, I think he's like 32 or something. Uh, so if you're over the 30 years mark, you know, K1 tries to figure out ways to put you out for pasture. Which is sad because uh, Yamazaki was actually supposed to be one of the big stars of this new K1 organization when they got started. Uh, for the first tournament, they matched him against uh, Gale U.S. Athletic because uh, they thought he was going to get that big win over a tie and just take the promotion to new places. And he's always stuck around being like a top five-ish guy in his division and being really, really good. Uh, but now they're at a place where they're trying to figure out new ways to make him lose. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I found this fight was pretty entertaining. Uh, you know, like, Terashima's coming in with all the Kido guys and, like, you know, like, looking crazy and trying to stare Yamazaki down and what have you. And then uh, the way he got finished was, like, he really got turned around in the corner and Yamazaki threw a right hand straight into the back of his head. I mean, it was some pretty brutal stuff. It looked like he was hugging the cor like going to hug the corner. It looked exactly like that. Like yeah, I, he got he got punched and then yeah, it was it was literally um one eighty or ninety or whatever. Yeah, like the force of punch just turned him around and it looked like he was bending down to hug the uh, I think it was the uh, the red corner. But yeah, no, it was it was a cool knockout. Um, what so now that you said that uh. 
they're kind they I guess the the whole point of this fight was to try to maybe put Yamazaki to pasture, and obviously that didn't happen. What happens with him next, and what happens with Tarashima? Yeah, so uh, Yamazaki at this point has like three knockouts in a row. He's beaten a couple of guys that are probably, um, you know, you might say are top ten within the division. Um, I, I say that knowing that there's no divisions uh, ranking structure in K1, but like. So he's basically at the place where he's the most obvious guy to challenge for the title next. That's a 60-kilogram title, and the uh, holder of that is Rukia. Uh, he had a fight on this card as well. So that's probably a rematch that's coming up. So they fought once, I think, last year or the year before, and it was basically the fight of the year for that card uh, for that uh, K1 season. So, you know, that should be a really cool rematch when it happens. Gotcha. What uh, What about uh, his opponents? Uh, who's uh, Who's like? It sounds like they were trying to build him up, but that didn't work out. So what happens with him? Did yeah. It... Back to the drawing board for him. You know, um, K one does these things where they might get a guy with like five fights, but like five really good fights, and try to throw them up against a veteran that's you know been doing the game at the top level for five years or something. Um, so typically, when you lose that. It's, uh, probably back to Crush, which is sort of the underling division, and he'll probably be uh, put in a place where he's being groomed to get the uh, championship of that league. Gotcha. Does K1, when like the fire they want to win loses, do they do? Like, do they ever punish the fire? Do they like try to put like, okay, you you fucked up all of our plans. Now you got to face I don't know some guy who knocks out every opponent in the first round. Do they do anything like that? Only if you're Thai. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, with that, Christian, you want to move on to the next match? Uh, yes, and this was one of the first title fights of the evening, obviously. The first of three world title fights on the evening. It was the K-1 Welterweight World Championship bout at 149 pounds. Former glory fighter Yuta Kubo... Actually, former Glory Grand Prix winner, if I'm not mistaken, Yuta Kubo, defeated former, now former K1 welterweight world champion, Jordan Shaggy Picour, the trainee of Mike Passamer in Amsterdam, Poland, the Netherlands, via unanimous decision. All three judges scored the fight 30-29. Kubo becomes the new K1 world welterweight champion with a 49-10 and 2 record. While the man who looks like who looks a little bit like the Jamaican American hip hop star Shaggy in the face a little bit <laughs> drops the forty seven eight and one. What were y'all's thoughts about this fight coming in? And did you guys really think that you know Jordan Bakur was gonna dominate this fight? Sorry, question. Just a question. Was was Kubo the champion, or did you say that Shaggy was the champion? Be cool. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have, I have oh. Kubo as a champion. Uh, oh, 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 well, shit. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so, thinking uh, about the uh, crush title, which uh, yeah. 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 so cool, so cool. My apology. So Kubo retained the American champion coming into this fight, yeah. and this was his third defense of the belt. So yeah, uh, Karev, I want to yeah pass off that uh, question from Chris, uh, question to you. Did you think that? Well, change around. Did you think that Kubo was gonna retain against uh, Shaggy? Well, he wasn't supposed to, 
Um, I don't know how much you guys know about Yuta Kubo, and he's a guy that had uh, the girl singing in for him and had a rap thing uh, going on for his entrance. Um, uh, well, I mean, to be honest, the only thing that people know about Yuta Kubo, at least here in the States, is the fact that he won that glory 65 gram tournament in 2013. Okay, uh, do you want the long story or the short story? Nah, just give us the clip notes version. Right. The short story is that Kubo basically fights once a year at this point, and when he's not fighting, he's always talking about how much he hates fighting and how he'd much rather be a reality TV star or a day trader or somebody that has like a love coaching business. So people were really looking forward to uh, Pierre, you know, pulling this one off because. Uh, He's been on a killing streak and basically beating all the top Japanese fighters in the division, like Noiri and Minoru. Uh, but then, you know, Kubo comes in for his first fight in a year, uh, and then somehow outpoints Piquel, who's been on a killing streak for like four years running. So it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's quite an upset, because like, you know, a lot of people say that, hey, Kubo's technical, he always had the capability to do this, if his mind was in the right place. So... People are sort of disappointed, but not surprised, I'd say. Yeah, when you look at, at Picor, he looks like he's the kind of guy, like, you look at him, you're like, oh, this guy knocks out fools in the first or second round. He just has that, he has that, that, that knockout, that guy who knocks out people look. If, if, you know what I'm saying? You know how fighters just have that look? He has that, he, I think he has that, that type of energy. But yeah, I was disappointed that unfortunately did not happen, so... Barring that, so can we expect Kubo to fight, presumably, again next year? And then, I don't know, still doing the yearly fights, Karev? We'll see. Uh, he said he's trying to start up some new business on the sidelines, and he'll only fight if people support that. So, uh, oh, Jesus. In his so he's he basically holding his, his own fight career hostage, basically. He's saying, support me in these endeavors or I'm not fighting. So, I mean... I don't know if that's... Or the K-1 belt, rather. Oh, okay. Can't If K-1 is just enough, hasn't had enough of this shit, can they just say, hey, we're taking the title away from you. Get the fuck out of here. Can't they just do that? <laughs> they can, but they won't. Because, like, Kubo's still popping up on their reality TV shows and causing drama and getting in the headlines and giving, you know, notoriety to the sport. So, you know, they're sort of like a guy they're willing to go out and have fun publicity. Ah, uh, gotcha. And what about people... Basically, like the reverse version of John Barnes Jones. Yeah. <laughs> so what about Picor? Uh, it, can we expect to see him again on another K1 card? Hopefully, redeem himself uh, to get that uh, get a win or something along those lines. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, he. I don't know if they'll give him the instant rematch that he's looking for, uh, asking for. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense for him to fight someone like Noiri or uh, Kimura, who he's beaten recently. Uh, and, you know, that might set up opportunities for him. I mean, he can also move up a division, because this fight was at 67.5 kgs, but he was also at 70 kgs before, um, and that's where he went to, like, a, what was it, runner-up in two Grand Prix that he went in. So he's a really good fighter at uh, 155 pounds as well. So, you know, he might just go for the championship belt there. Gotcha. And before we move on to the next fight, I just have one question I should have asked before. Why do a lot of Japanese kickboxers go by their given name? Just oh. like, without, the, without the last name, without the family name. 
Yeah, everyone's trying to copy uh, Masato, basically. So Masato was basically this transcendent kickboxing star that was on TV and everybody knew about him like 10 years ago. And now everyone's coming up here and trying to go by like Kaito or Hayato or what have you. And then it's all fine and fair, though, you know, you realize there's like 10 Kaidos that are active kickboxers right now. Oh, yes. It, it does not make it easy when I have to research fighters and they just go by the name Yuta. That yeah. entirely, that, that irritates me so much because, yeah, because sometimes they don't, they don't even have, I can't even find their kanji sometimes. Or their kanji is similar. If they're, like, I think there's, there's two Yuta Shibatas. One who's an MMA fighter, one who's a <laughs> kickboxer. And I think yeah. one time, yeah, I think Yuta, the kickboxer, fought for Ryzen. And when I was trying to look up fights that he was in, I was getting Yuta, the, kick, uh, the, the MMA fighter. So... So it's all because Masato is the one who started this shit, basically, is what you're saying. Basically. Ugh. He was uh, actually supposed to go on after a different name. Like, he was supposed to be named, uh, what was it? Fuji Kansai-san or something. No, Fuji Sankai-san. That was supposed to be his fight name. But he was like, uh, that's too you know, preposterous. That's too many characters. Just make it simple. And he went by his first name and... Ruin the sport for everyone. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, with that, Christian, want to move on to the next match? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and keep this train rolling. <laughs> 127-pound kickboxing bout grace the stage as... Uh, I'm going to have trouble reading his name off. Jasuyayai, Jasuyayai Sordechapan, a.k.a. Jasuyayai Ayatoya Fight Gym. TKO Kaito Ozawa via strikes at the end, well, actually, at the start of round three, due to the fact that Dutchman fucked up Ozawa so bad that he could not get up due to a doctor stoppage cut lip, obviously. <laughs> With the win, Jasuya Yai improves to 65, 35, and 2. Ozawa drops to 14, 8, and 2. And I just have to ask, even though I didn't see it, how brutal was that cut lip from Ozawa? Have you, you remember that Alistair fight? Yeah, where, I was, yeah. I had that, correct, sorry to interrupt, I had that in my notes, that it, it reminded me of the Alistair Overeem uh, Jair Rosenstruck fight. Oh, yeah, that fight that happened recently where basically Rosenstruck just brutalized Overeem. But the way that it's the way that his lip opened in that in that last round, Christian. Uh, if you remember, Jair got that that punch and it just ripped. It made this like perfect like rip in in Overeem's lip, and ju it looked like someone just took like, took his lip and just like split into. That's kind of what happened here. But I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Karev. Uh, didn't Ozawa lose a tooth or have it impacted uh dent something? An injury to his mouth beyond the uh, the cut lip. I haven't heard of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, uh, he took some crazy high kicks before that as well. You know. Um. Uh, sorry, go ahead. It's crazy, he was conscious. So you know. I actually, uh, yeah. Um, I just want to say that both of them got knocked knocked each other down in the first round, and it looked like I thought that Dechpon was the one who was gonna he was gonna get knocked down in the in the, in the next round, but it was. It was actually cool how it happened. So Ozawa tries to do a spinning back fist. Uh, Dechpan, like at the perfect moment, does that does a high kick, and that's when the split lip opens. 
And I didn't think that they were going to stop the fight. I thought they were going to let it continue. But I guess, is that something that normally... How is K1 when it comes to cuts uh, and that sort of thing, Karev? Are they like Pride and Rising where if you have like one slight cut, they're going to stop the fight? Or was it just the way that this injury was that they stopped it? They're a lot more forgiving in general because, you know, for one thing, it's not televised national TV. Um, but they are, they do stop it a lot more than, say, the UFC or what have you. Uh, I think it was the fact that it was his lip that was cut, you know, and it was so obvious that was uh, the thing that stopped it. Because, you know, it looked like a zombie movie out there. Oh, yeah. I, I was I was thinking that maybe he had a broken jaw. That's why they stopped it. But then when I saw it was to cut the lip, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, um, but I think, yeah. Uh, nah, they don't stop on bro- broken jaws. One oh. of the guys in this car got a broken jaw. Oh, okay. Oh, it'll be interesting to hear who that happened to. But uh, the other question I have is: so a lot of a lot of these K one shows, they they pack. The, you said they pack them with foreigners, and I notice a lot of Thai guys come in. Is uh, do they basically bring the Thai guys in so that they can lose to the Japanese guys? And is that kind of what their modus operandi is? K one. There's basically like three types of Thai guys that K one will bring in. One is basically you know the guy predominantly. Uh, Alatar was probably close to that just because, you know, it was last minute for him. Then they also bring in uh, Thai guys that have, you know, a really good record and they might be a existing world champ or a uh, someone that's reigned currently. And they'll bring them in to try to get them to lose versus guys like Takeru, like Yoki Sada. Um, and then the third category of Thai guys is basically like all action guys that go in to try to kill their opponent. And uh, Zhao Suayai, who fought last night, was one of those. So they got him for a 57.5 kg tournament uh, late, earlier in the year. Uh, he knocked out, like, uh, did he knock them out? Yeah, I think he knocked out one really, you know, highly regarded Japanese guy. And he had, like, a really close fight that went to an extension uh, versus another Japanese veteran. Uh, and then he lost in the finals, but you know he made a good impression, got a call back. Uh, and then he beat Ozawa, who's also actually a pretty popular name in Japan himself. So they're definitely going to bring him back again. Gotcha. What about the what about uh, Deshpan? You think because um, he won, they'll bring him back, or just uh, one and done type thing? Well, first of all, Andrew, let me go ahead and say that this dude, this young man. Eighteen years old. Yeah, he's three and one in K one, but let's not forget the fact that this man is eighteen years old and he's already got a hundred and two fights in him. Oh my god! Wait, is hundred two wins or a total of a hundred and two fights? Well, actually, no. Let me just rephrase that. He's got a hundred and twelve wins in him. No, wait. Actually, he's got a hundred and twelve fights in him. And he's already 18 years old. Okay, wow. Okay. So, yeah, you definitely think we'll see uh, Dutch Pound come back in the uh, for a future K1 show, Karev? Definitely come back. I think the trouble is that uh, they're probably not going to give him a title fight soon away because he fought uh, the champion in that division, Egala, and he got thrown out in the round. Um so, you know, the hurdle to try to get a rematch after a performance like that, especially if you're foreign, is going to be pretty high. Uh, but I think they're going to call him back to try to face off against someone that's, uh, you know, probably a bit 
uh, closer to the contender ranks, probably some local Japanese guy that they want to put uh, him over. Uh, just and also quickly, with the world, the way that the world is going right now, uh, I have no idea what it'll be like next month or two months or whenever K One runs their next show. Uh, do you think that there there's there's just gonna be more Japanese guys based on the way that there's a, on the travel restrictions that are going around uh, at this point? And do you uh, do you think that they're just gonna be safe and maybe just have Japanese guys a, a full like Japanese card or or foreigners who live in Japan by any chance? Yeah. I think uh, they do have like a couple local Thai guys, guys who found success in Japan and stayed here. But, uh, you know, we just had a guy from uh, Armenia cancel on the crush fight that was supposed to take place tonight. So, um, you know, they're only going to cut down from here. I think Japan in general is a bit more, you know, thinking that this is going to blow over soon. Uh, they still haven't gone into lockdown or anything. So, you know, they might be planning and scheduling, assuming foreigners are going to come in. But I'd imagine that if I was uh, K1 or Ryzen, you know, I'd try to mitigate that risk uh, for some of the fights. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Christian, you want to move on to the next match? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and go on to the next super fight on the card, a 121-pound super fight as Masashi Kumura defeated Akihiro Kaneko. Akihiro Kaneko via majority decision. One judge scored the fight 30 all, the other two had decent scores 30 29 and 30 28. Kumura improves to 15 and 3 overall, while Kaneko drops to 9 and 1. Any thoughts about this fight? Uh, Karev, I want to pa pass it off to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a good fight, it was a technical fight. I think people are hoping this would be the fight of the night. Um, so basically, for K Festa 2 last year, they had uh, Kaneko fight Kumura's brother, younger, older brother, older brother, Shuhei. Uh, and then that was like one of the craziest fights of that year. So I think they were trying to bait them into having a repeat by forcing him to fight his brother. Um, you know, it was a really technical, really active fight, but it wasn't really uh, anywhere close to that crazy. So yeah, that fight, uh, not the best thing in the world. I have in my notes... That was a fine technical kickboxing match. That that's that's what it was. That's that's like that is it's. I, I guess I guess kind of like maybe the best and worst of kickboxing, where it's it's the type of kickboxing match that uh, I think maybe kickboxing fans would love. But then if this is your first fight watching a kickboxing match, it might be the worst fight to to ever come across because it's it's gonna it, it's gonna you're gonna understand why it's good, but it's not gonna. It's not going to be like that barn burner, like the match you just said, which I haven't seen, but it sounds like it was probably much, much, a lot, much more exciting fights. Oh, yeah. I mean, like uh, with this one, right? Like basically, Masashi realized that he had a jab over Kaneko, and, you know, they were trying to get in and get off combos, but, yeah, you know, Kimura was just like always a step ahead and always ending later, and he was just edging each one of the exchanges that they had, whereas in the fight with uh, Kaneko and Kumura's brother Shuhei, like, one of them might, like, get off a spinning back fist, and, like, it looks like this guy's gonna go down, but then the other guy strings together, like, a barrage of boxing combos, and it just went round over round like that, so, you know, what, good fight. What do you think would be next for both of them? Um, 
So it's actually a tricky one because I think if I was K1, I would have wanted Kaneko to win here because he was this undefeated prospect and uh, he was basically like this big unknown wild card that was in the 55 kg division. And 55 kg is probably one of the most competitive kickboxing leagues out there. Uh, but the guy who's on top, uh, Takikei, um, he's basically at a point where no one can touch him, and he's uh, knocked out all the top contenders there, uh, including Kimura. So I think they were hoping that Kaneko wins this and goes off to challenge Takei, but that did not happen. So, you know, um, Kimura basically has to go out and make the case that he earned a right to get the rematch with Takei. And uh, it might be that to have him up, he has to fight a couple of foreign guys that Takei has had problems with. Uh, but, you know, that's probably in the future for him. With uh, Kaneko, it's back to the drawing board. He's a champion in an underweight promotion called Crush, and there's a lot of contenders there. So he probably has to uh, take a step down in competition first. Do you agree with the majority decision, or was this a case where, uh, I don't know how often K1 judges get things wrong, or for, did you agree oh, with? Oh, oh <laughs> what do you think about the majority decision uh, uh, by the judges? Was that uh, rightfully uh, Kimura's, or should it have been split or unanimous? Anything you could talk about that? Yeah, I think, you know, you got to say one of uh, two of them had actual judging. But, yeah, I think Kumura clearly edged it. Um, not a fan of the draw. I can see why they ended it there, right? A lot of the times, you know, people will just give in scores. Even if someone is taking, say, a fight with, like, 5% margin or something, just score even because they want to extend it with extension and try to get a more decisive finish. But, you know, if you're trying to be fair, like, I don't think there's a case that um, Kaneko won any of the rounds, whereas I think there's a case you could make that Kumura edged all the rounds, if not decisively. So, should have gone to Kumura. Gotcha. Uh, with that being said, Christian, want to move on to the next match? And I'm pretty sure that this, uh, this will be a unique match to talk about because I've heard so much about one of the fighters and we finally get to talk about him. Mm-hmm. That we do, and it's a 132-pound superfight as Leona Pettis not be confused with his legendary friend Nicholas Pettis, the Greek fighter, defeated Yuta Milkowski via TKO and Leonard right here at 33 seconds. Pettis, Leona Pettis, the native of Tagaspo, Miyagi, Japan, Improved to 27-5 and one more post in the name of the Fuji Salakanakami and brought to 28 and 9. Now, how to add, when you think of the last name Petas in kickboxing, what comes to mind? Sorry, can you repeat that last sentence? When you think of the last name Petas, P-E-T-T-A-S, in kickboxing, especially in K-1, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Nicholas. <laughs> well, so, well, yeah, well, that's, uh, I really want to talk about this match because Leona was one of those guys I've heard so much about. And he's got a lot, a, 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 I would probably say a cult following. Are you part of the uh, Leona Pettis uh, fan club, Karev? Yeah, man. I started it. I am all on the Leona Pettis is going to knock Takeru out fan club. Oh, okay. Long okay. before he became the 60-kilogram crush champion, 
Oh man, he's been uh, in the game for a long time. Um, so let me see. I think it was maybe two years ago. That no, it was probably like three years ago almost that he actually became. No, it was two years ago that he became crush champ, I think. And he's just been on well, script since. Yeah, I guess you can say that. So, uh, I got how. Where does the name Leona come from? If you happen to know that uh, backstory. That's his actual name. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah. It's spelled with kanji and everything. It's called Leona. Uh, it's a weird name in Japan, too. And then he just adopted the pettis name from Nicholas. So, you uh, know. Ah, yes, I have his name. as Kato Riona with an R. I forgot the whole LR yeah. thing. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but, yeah, he has a big following. And uh, I can understand why, because he... <laughs> He basically beat the shit out of Murakoshi for all three rounds, and it did. It looked so one-sided. It was. I almost felt bad for Murakoshi having to get this fight. Um, what can you tell us about Murakoshi, Karev? Uh, Murakoshi is a bit of a sad case, to be honest with you, because um, coming up when he was young, he uh, he took the championship in Rise when he was only like twenty years old or something, and it was supposed to be the start of this great legacy for him. Uh, but I think first or one of the earliest title defenses he had was against this kid called Tenshin Nasukawa. And he got blitzed mm -hmm. out, obviously, by someone that was even younger than him, right? Mm -hmm. And he stuck around that league and he was trying to get the rematch versus Tenshin, which he finally earned. And then that went into an extension round decision, I think, or a split decision uh, within three rounds. I forget which. But it was sort of like a much more competitive fight. But at that point, he was like, okay, well, I'm sort of burned out within Rise, I need new challenges, and he wanted to fight Takeru, so he moved bases to K1, he was supposed to be a big signing for him once he first joined, and he took part in a uh, Grand Prix that they had uh, in his wake, and he ended up winning it, but he also ended up winning it with like a lot of really close decisions that people didn't agree with, so, you know, he became really famous, but he wasn't really uh, well liked, and in continue like that throughout his entire title reign because he would keep dropping fights uh, that he wasn't supposed to drop and then still retaining the title because they were non-title fights. Uh, actually got the fight versus Takeru last year and then I think a lot of people, you know, his stock went up in that one because uh, he made it competitive. A lot of people thought he should have gotten the decision. Um, and then basically he was coming into this fight saying, okay, well, I got Rob versus Takeru. I'm supposed to grab a win here and then be back on the top of my division. But, uh, yeah, Leona sort of crushed those hopes for him. So. Uh, I did, I, I did see that Murakoshi, uh, Takaru match. It was a, it was a fun fucking fight. That was a fun ass fight. Uh, even though I think that Murakoshi probably was, was definitely, he was clearly the lesser of the boxer, kickboxer between two. It was, it was still competitive. Like you said, it was competitive enough that it was, it still was like that little glimmer of hope. That little glimmer of hope was there, but uh, that kept me watching and kept me maybe thinking, maybe. But alas, that was not supposed to be. Now with Leona, uh, you saying you just said something very interesting. Uh, Leona hoping to knock out Takaru Club or whatever you said. Do you think? Yeah, Leona's gonna knock Takaru out, man. Well, is it? Will these two ever have a clash, or is this something that K One? 
you know, let's be honest, Takaru is is basically their bread and he's their one man bread and butter. Is that something that they would want to do with the risk of potentially ruining that 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 aura that that Takaru has for their organization? Well, that's the thing about Leona. Um, he the reason why he has a cult following is because he is such an unlikely hero. He is, to be frank, not super marketable. Like, you know, starting from his name uh, and, you know, from the fact that he uses Final Fantasy or PGM uh, music as his walk-ins uh, <laughs> and everything about him is sort of like this, you know, sort of gangly, awkward guy. But he's also a really hyper-competent kickboxer. And basically, he's at a, I don't know, he's like in a 9 or 10 fight winning streak, I think, at this point. And he's beaten a lot of the guys that were supposed to be the, you know, curse competition for Takuru. So, you know, maybe like as early as a year or so ago, people were asking that, you know, he gets a step up to actually go out and fight Takeru. Uh, and he's become a crush champion since then. He's made a title defense since then. He's also gone out and um, knocked out guys that Takeru has fought before in more compelling fashions. You know, and people are really being like, okay, well, maybe it's about time you should give uh, Leona a chance. Uh, but, you know, hopefully things work out for him. Um, the other thing behind him, and this is a bit of a sadder story, is that he has a mom that is currently fighting uh, stage four cancer. So, you know, they're on the timeline, and he keeps asking for that Takeru fight before, you know, uh, something uh, that can be reversed happens, but uh, you know things just keep getting delayed. I guess. Gotcha. I got. If, presuming in, in all likelihood that the Takru, uh, the I, I, let's be, I don't think the Takru fight's gonna happen, uh, if ever at this point. But uh, barring that, who would you, who would be like the ideal next opponent for him? Uh, if not, if if they if Takru doesn't happen, is there anybody that you would have in mind? Well, I think, you know, it probably m might happen for the next one because, you know, the only other meaningful option for Takeru at this point is Tenshin Nasukawa. Uh, but yeah, good luck with that. But if it doesn't happen, it probably is Oiwa, who is this other 60 kg guy uh, around their division. Um, he's basically like Takeru's little brother. He uh, fights out of the same gym and tags along with him for all his training camps. So they might give... He's also, you know, um, a fairly good kickboxer, so they might do it as sort of a grudge match thing, you know, just to delay the fight. Uh, the other option is that in Osaka, um, in maybe like three, four months, they're planning to have an event there. And for the Osaka events, they always get this guy called Koji, who is sort of like the local hero. So they might make him fight that him next. Either way, like, you know, I'm hopeful that the Takeru fight happens, but uh, a lot of other people for him to face elsewhere. Gotcha. And the next fight, you mentioned his name many times, and we finally get to talk about uh, about his match. Uh, Christian, uh, pass it off on to you. Okay. 149-pound super fight. Former Glory 65-kilogram tournament runner-up. Masaaki Nori defeated David Meh. No, David Meh. Yeah, because he's from Seville, Spain. David Mejia via unanimous decision. Two judges scored the fight 30-28, the other 30-29. Nori, the native of... 
Nagoya IG Japan improves to 41 and 10 overall. Mejia, as I mentioned, from Seville, Spain, 56, 11 and 1 is his new record. He drops too. So I gotta ask, what has I mean? What are your thoughts about Masaaki Nori, especially ever since you know he's been a part of K1? Yeah, um, he is one of my favorite kickboxers to watch. Like, literally, the first time we saw him fighting on national TV was when he was like 16 years old or something. And just since and then, kind of think of it wasn't that at um, Dynamite 2009 when he yeah, won exactly. Oshian tournament. Yeah, and we were all watching him, and he was like, we were like, oh wow, this guy's a robot. He is doing impossible moves from the future that no one is capable of. And, you know, he's just been doing that for, like, a decade or so. And he's always been a guy that was at least, champ- if not championship level, like, the guy that can challenge the number one guy and probably give him a really close fight for the entire 10-year span. And, you know, the troubling thing about him, I guess, is that he's just so good and the expectations on him are so high at this point that if he's not pulling off video game combos against, you know, rankable opponents, then... People are sort of like, oh, we're disappointed. And, you know, I guess that's sort of a uh, story for this fight as well. Because, uh, you know, it was really close. Uh, I think both sides were really technical. But, you know, like, it wasn't a finish. So Nori had to apologize after the fight. Didn't he? Was he, was he the fighter that shaved his hair for uh, not finishing the fight? No, that's another guy. Uh, that fight fought a tie later in the card. Okay, gotcha. Because, well, that I want to hear about. Because I thought, like, wow, that's... Well, that's that's takes some dedication. Um, now I'm looking at uh, uh, Nori's record uh, on topology elites, and he has two losses against two people who we talked about before, uh, Picor and Kubo. Any chance maybe that though? Do you think that he'll get a rematch with Kubo at some point and maybe try to get the title? Um, think K1 would want to do that because they're tired of Kubo shit. Yeah. So Nori's at sixty. Let me see. He's at sixty-seven point five now, right? Yeah. Uh, and Kubo is it there as well. Like, that's the ultimate backstopper, I guess, because uh, last time they fought Nori won. I think they fought, like, three times. Once was in, like, 2010, or uh, once was in 2010 or 2011 or something, and then Nori was, like, 17 years old, so that one doesn't count. Uh, the second one was in the Glory uh, Grand Slam, and then Kubo won that, but it was the last fight in a tournament Grand Prix, and then uh, Kubo basically spinning back kicked his nards and broke his cup open and you know it was sort of wasn't a competitive fight after that and then the third time you know Noiri handled Kubo pretty uh, you know one-sidedly and just dragged him down from the dominance of that division so I think people expect if they were to rematch Noiri should be able to pull it off I don't know if that's the first thing they're going to go out and do uh, they, there are a bunch of names at that division, so they might uh, deprioritize Nori. That's the thing about Nori, really. Like He's just so good, and he's also such a company man that he's sort of like this convenient boogeyman figure for K1 to play with. And what can you tell us about Meha? Uh, is he somebody who can come back at some point for K1? I don't know if they'll call him back for K1. They might call him back for uh, uh, Crush. He's a really competent guy. Like, he's, uh, you know, 
fight was really close. I think he's also had good uh, fights at places like uh, Infusion and in WLF. Um, so they might call him back. Gotcha. Um, what about a match with uh, uh, Noriri and uh, Picor? Ain't, you think K1 would be interested in doing that again, or is it kind of... They don't, they don't really like to do the rematches like on that scale that much. I think that's more likely than... They probably don't like to do fighters... I mean, they probably don't like to pick fighters and fights of which both of the guys just lost a fight. Mm. Yeah. It was pretty competitive, um, and it was a really good fight when it lasted. Uh, probably one of the best last year. So... And K1 hasn't forgotten that fight, so they might do it. I think it's more likely than him fighting Kubo next. Because, mm. you know, it's just contenders fighting each other. Uh, but we'll see. Gotcha. Uh, Want to move on to the next fight, Christian? Because I'm pretty sure when we talk about this, it'll probably last longer than the actual fight. And, I mean, come to think of it, do you want to talk about this one semifinal or both semifinals? Oh, we'll do, we'll, we'll, let's talk, we're gonna talk, let's talk about both of them. Okay, okay, because I'm pretty sure the more we talk about the first fight, the more it'll take away the attention from the second fight. But here we go. In the K1 154-pound Grand Prix semifinals, Philip Manuel Kimura knocked out Elder Lopez with a right straight. One minute, two seconds of round number one. And Hiromi Wajima defeated Yasuhiro Kido in the second semifinal via decision after three three-minute rounds. Kimura improves to the final fight with a 34-9-1 record, while Lopez goes back to Portugal with a 19-7 record in his semifinal failure. As for Wajima, he moves on to face Kimura in the finals with a 12-3 overall record, while the golden hitman Kido Drops to 50, 24, and 1. First of all, what are your thoughts about Kimura's punching power? Second of all, I mean, do you think that Wajima dominated Keto enough? What do you guys think? Oh, I was going to have you answer that first, uh, Greg. <laughs> You're the guest here. We want to hear you. <laughs> well, Minoru uh, melted that guy. Kale uh, of the year. Probably because of lack of competition, if anything. But you know, I mean, that was some crazy stuff. I think. And well, what about the next fight? Did you think the uh, Wajima totally dominated uh, his opponent? Well, you know, uh, Kido kept it competitive. I think. I think in the first round, I was, you know, after seeing what Wajima was doing, I thought he would run away with it a bit more. Uh, but Kido managed to still return kicks and then low punches. Uh, and then, you know, he was just trying to uh, keep it as close as possible. You know, I think Wajima, it was obvious that he really researched Kido. Like, you can see Kido going for his tricks, like the spinning back fist, but Wajima didn't get caught by any of them. Uh, whereas, you know, you saw guys like Jimbo uh, getting laid out like that previously in Paris. Uh, so, you know, um, Wajima's uh, actually a pretty decent prospect, I'd say. Uh, I think, with the exception of his last two fights, he had like 10 wins and 10 KOs or something. Um, so, you know, he's a guy that's still young and still trying to, uh, you know, find his groove. But this is a good win for him. And I just want to also want to say, Lopez, when he went down, it was kind of like 
it was like a tree falling down. It was almost he kind of just like fell flat on his face when he went down. It was you're right. It is that is a knockout of the year for any promotion. Uh, it it was beautiful. It was like picture perfect, picture perfect. Um, now, were you obviously Kimura and Wajima is going to happen later? Was that the uh, finals that you were looking forward to, or were you looking forward? Did you want to see two other people make it to the finals? I expected Kimura and Palace if Larson fell through. Um, but you know, Palace got laid out, uh, and then you know Larson couldn't make it. So yeah, I mean, it was a Kimura Wajima final, and you know it was a rematch. So. Yeah, I was looking more for what Wajima could bring to the table uh, with this rematch uh, than anything. Gotcha. Uh, with that, uh, Christian, let's move on to the next match, another super fight. Uh, it wasn't just a super fight. It was a fight for the K-1 Super Lightweight Championship at 143 pounds as Rukia Anpo defeated Fukashi Mizutani of Try Hard Gym. Via unanimous decision, two judges scored the fight 29-28, the other 30-27. Ampo, a native of Emeji, let's see, Emeji, Yogo, Japan, improves to, well, actually, Ampo is the fighter from Chihar, might I add, but Ampo, the native of Emeji, Yogo, Japan, improves to 19-4. Fukashi, the native of Bangkok, Thailand, fighting out of Shino, Tokyo, Japan, drops to 18-6-2 and loses the K-1 Super... Well, actually, is the current K-1... Ah, oh, damn it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just getting caught up in another fight. What am I saying? Basically, Pompo moves to 19-4. Bukashi drops to 39-14-2. Any thoughts about this fight before I lose my fucking mind? <laughs> I think it was a fun one. Uh, you know, I'm glad Ampo got a pretty, uh, you know, got a good showing. Um, so the thing about Rukia is that uh, basically when he was a kid, like when he was like seven or six years old or something, there used to be a TV camera that followed him and his brothers around promoting him as, like, this next-generation karate uh, uh, guy. And, you know, that was back when K-1 was big on the TV show, so he always grew up uh, imagining he was going to become K-1 champion one day. And then K-1 fell apart, and then, you know, things were tough on him. But then they rebooted K-1, and then he joined up. So, you know, this is this belt has been in his sights for a long time, like... He used to be a part of Try Hard Gym with Hiroya and Taiga, but when they left K1, he refused to go along with them and started up his own gym, even though he's like, you know, in his early 20s, so he had to like crowdfund everything to kick his career up uh, and then try to win this uh, belt. So it's been a long time coming, and I think there's been a lot of pressure for him to just perform at that level, right? So he, the way he won this uh, belt is that he got a pair of really close and really controversial decisions over like the long-reigning Thai champion Yale, and uh, a lot of people were you know turning on him because those weren't super actiony fights. He just sort of edged the decision, and he's been on the lookout for 
uh, you know, ways to return to the knockout style. Because before, he used to be this guy that was pulling off really, like, Matrix-type switch kicks and uh, jumping knees and what have you and laying people out. And then he was just, like, uh, had this streak where he couldn't KO people. But uh, now it seems like it's returning a bit. Uh, he dropped Fukashi and, uh, you know, had a great fight. So, good for him. I'd like to bring up, uh, in the first round, he got a successful... What is it like? A, what is it? A capo kick or whatever? The uh, you know, you see tension doing yeah, a lot. Rolling thunder. Rolling, rolling thunder. Yeah, just like out of nowhere, he uh, he had uh, he had Fukashi uh, reeling, and then Fukashi's up against the rope, and he just does this rolling thunder. He tried, and it was successful. He hit it, but then he tried it again in the third round, and he was like, he missed him by like a mile. <laughs> I felt, yeah. I felt so bad. So, um, so was he the fire that wound up shaving his hair? Um. Uh, no. Oh, no? The uh, guy who did was uh, Takei, uh, the guy who brought the tie. Ah, okay, gotcha. Oh, we'll get, okay, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to him soon. But, uh, so what happens next with, uh, with both the, with Anpo and uh, Fukashi um, after this, uh, Kareb? What do you think K1 will do with that? Yeah, I think uh, with Anpo, it's pretty clear that he's on the path to a rematch with uh, Yamazaki. Uh, and both of them are from the western part of Japan, and K1's going to have a Osaka uh, event there in like two, three months, hopefully. So if that pans out, uh, it's probably a title match then. Uh, with Fukashi, it's a lot more difficult to say, because he's a lot closer to the tail end of his career, and I think he put on a really good fight. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, you he was coming in here with having won tournament belts, and Rise and Rebels and Knockout. He basically had like five different belts coming into this, and then he was promoting himself at this Invader. Uh, but you know, he took a stumble. So we'll see what's next for him. Um, I don't think he's contemplating retirement or something, but uh, I think he's made noise about going up a division. So that might be what's next. Gotcha. Uh, actually, I want to ask as well. I never heard the name Anpo before. Um, is that a unique Japanese name? Because you kind of hear a lot of the same names, uh, or you kind of recognize a Japanese name. Is there any, do you happen to know anything that Ampo, like, it's significant by any chance? Um, I think it's a, a uncommon but not unheard of name. Um, I think the letters stand for, like, safety and insurance or something like that. Okay. Uh, which is not how he fights, so, oh, you know. absolutely not. Actually, I'll, I'll probably, I'll, all the fighters, well... Uh, one, uh, well, he was probably the one, uh, you know, as someone who semi new to the new K1. I thought he was the one who stood out the most for me. Like, uh, who was like, oh, I want to see more of this guy. Um, well, compared to everybody else who uh, who I was familiar with, uh, all the most unknown guys, he was the one who I was like, I hope I see this guy again. I really do. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, like, I think a lot of people soured on him after the way he won the belts, but he's a guy that, uh, ダッフライヒザガタイプガイデンポーズアフソフトエンドアップオンザトップオブレッドエンドワハビユノウ。ヒズジャスライクケイオインピポウウスクレイジームーブズエンドバディーノウズヒズネームイズドカプイザファイ
K1 lightweight champion Kenta Hayashi gave you a unanimous decision. Two judges scored the fight, 29-26, the other 3-26. Asahisa improved to 15-7 overall, while Hayashi, the fighter from Tryhard Gym, well, actually, the fighter from Bleiski Gym and a native of Takogawa, Hyogo, Japan, the K1 lightweight champion drops to 18-6-2. Now, as far as Hayashi goes, this was his third planned fight on the card. He was originally supposed to face off against Swedish fighter Kim Falk, but Falk could not fly out from Sweden to Japan due to the travel ban. He was originally... No, then he was next supposed to fight Qi Qiu of China, but we all know China has a serious coronavirus case, and of course, that couldn't have happened. So do you think that Asahisa just took advantage of the fact that Hayashi just was winded from getting oddball left, right, and center on who was going to face him up until this point? I guess. I mean, like, this was not supposed to happen. He was not supposed to win this fight. He's coming in on three days' notice. He's fighting up a division because he didn't have time to make way. Uh, and Hayashi's been on the roll. But, uh, you know, like, he outclassed Hayashi in every element, you know. I, I have to say that, uh, that uh, uh, As uh, Tayo had some of the most beautiful push kicks I've ever seen. Just the height he gets on those kicks was just... I have, like, he's, like, reaching, like, even, like... It looks like he's almost overshooting sometimes. Uh, uh, Hayashi. Um, uh, but with this fight, um, yeah, Hayashi, you know, give credit to some guy who had, like, who, like you said, had two different opponents and, um, still, you know, still managed to put on a good fight. Um, I will say, though, that, uh, Hayashi, he came out, uh, his, um, robe said, only God can judge me, but <laughs> seems like, uh, the judges do not agree with that. They judge against Mr. Hayashi. Um, uh, but, but yeah, so what, what, what happens with these two? Uh, they put on a great fight, I thought, uh, Karev. What, did we, what happens with Asahisa and then what happens with Hayashi, you think? Yeah, Asahisa's a pretty cool character. Um, like, his father basically invented the style of karate that he and his uh, brother does. Wait, did, did I get that right? His father invented this style of karate, and he basically does it alongside his brother and became... Uh, karate, uh, sorry, uh, kickboxing champions. So, yeah, he has a character to go for. The only thing that's been stopping him so far is the fact that he'll go on a roll, and then he faces off against Leona Pettis, who beats him. Um, so he's had two losses to Leona so far, and he called uh, Leona out after the fight. Um, I don't think they're going to make him do a rematch, but he's always available if they want to delay the Takeru fight any further. So, Hayashi is uh, still the champion. He's still 62.5 kg champion. This was a non-title fight. But, you know, he has a lot to uh, come back from. I think they might rebook him against uh, one of his last uh, original opponents, uh, probably like uh, Shuai, who defeated Uabi Koya. Um, but, you know, it's a step back for him for sure. And he just bought house. So, you know, good luck. The karate thing makes sense now because in the second round he got that crane knockout, the knockdown, uh, like reminiscent of Lyoto Mashida and Randy Couture. Um, and I, 
yeah, that is totally that is that is one hundred percent karate. Uh, uh, that's a type of karate kick that you just don't see a lot of kickboxers do, or if they try it, they fail miserably. Don't even come close to connecting. Uh, so now the whole karate thing makes sense now that he was able to basically, yeah, get that get that knockdown. Um, and uh, actually, here's the question I want to ask before, um, because uh, I'm curious. Why does it seem like a uh, and, and these two fighters are not from that region? But why does it seem like a lot of kickboxers come from the Nagoya Aichi region? Karev, do you happen to have a? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it's a big epicenter of kickboxing in Japan. So in Japan, like uh, even though it's a small country, right? Uh, they basically have a regional kickboxing scene split up by different regions. And Tokyo is by far the biggest because it's where you know, K1 and Rise and Rising is. So in the Kanto region, they have a lot of gyms over there. Uh, but the other cluster they have is in Aichi. And that's going way back, uh, even from, you know, the days of uh, K1 Max, uh, Sato Yoshihiro used to be a big fighter out of that region. Um, and then since then, guys Nori, Tetsuya Yamato, uh, you know, Akimoto, a bunch of guys that I'm probably forgetting right now, they all just sort of clustered out of there because I guess they have some really good gyms. Gotcha, gotcha. With that, uh, Christian, let's move on to the lone female fight of the card. Uh, yes, the lone women's fight at 110 pounds featured. Oop, did we lose you, Christian? Christian? Oh, no. A.K.A. Austin. Sorry, Christian, could you repeat that again? You broke uh, up. Uh, you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Could you just repeat that uh, again? Yeah. Let me go ahead and repeat myself a little slower. This was a 110-pound women's super fight as Kana Morimoto, not to be confused with Kanako Urai, a.k.a. Oscar from the WWE, knocked out Italian from Milan, Italy, Gloria Pellitore. Via TKO. Punches. Two minutes, 42 seconds of round number one. Boy Moto, who is the K1 Women's Super Flyweight World Champion, improves to 17 and 2 with love. While Perry Tori, who holds a 1 and 1 professional MMA record, and also fought former K1, well, actually, former Infusion Champion, Denise Miss Dynamite Killholtz. In the Bellator ring, at one point in time, drops to 17 and 7 overall. Now, as far as Kana goes, I just have to ask: Is there anybody that faced her? And as far as Perry goes, will she be invited back? Knowing damn well that she shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, that's the that's the big question I have. How did she get there? She must have she must have gone there before the the travel ban the before the lockdown in Italy. I cannot think of any other reason how any other how, there's you can't you can't even walk the streets in Italy. How would she be able to get on a plane to Japan? She must have gone there at least a few weeks early. I don't know if do you ha, do you happen to have any sources on that, Karev? No. It's also possible that, you know, he, she's from Italy but she trains out of a different gym. Uh I don't know if I've heard that, but uh yeah, I assume she didn't fly straight from Italy. Uh, otherwise, the authorities in Japan are going to have some problems with anyone. 
Okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, let's talk about this match. So, um, yeah, tell us about uh, Kana, one of millions of Kanas who do uh, combat sports in Japan. Yeah, so uh, Kana's a girl they've been counting off for quite a while. Like, you know, she started emerging on the Japanese scene maybe like five years ago, uh, and then she picked the crush belt when she was only like three or four fights in, I think. So she was supposed to be this, um, you know, up and riser, uh, looks and sort of fights like Takeru, and people were counting on her to basically kickstart a women's division in K1 and sort of be that new face that can draw new fans. Um, so they finally made her dream come true and had a K1 Grand Prix uh, last year uh, to crown her champion. Um, but the you know thing about that was that she was facing, uh, you know, for the finals, she got the extra round decision that a lot of people didn't really agree with. Uh, and it's always the same story of, you know, these people go up in the K1 tournaments, uh, people know that K1 wants them to win, and they don't always pull off the most decisive and convincing wins. So, you know, she had a lot of uh, ground to make up for in terms of lost credibility. And this was basically the first time in a while, uh, probably like two years maybe, that she actually got like a uh, full-blown KO. So good stuff for her, and hopefully she can replicate this performance on future cards. Uh, anything you can say about Goria Peratore? Uh, I hope she's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm thinking. So, okay, so the knockout, so the referee... Oh, so I wanted to ask as well. This was also the lone woman's referee as well. Do you, What can you tell us about the about this referee? Because she did not appear at all in any other fights. She refs all female fights in the K1 group. I can't really make up my mind whether it's sexist or equal opportunity, but that's just the thing they have there. Well, because, yeah, because... If it's a female fight, they get a female referee. You know, because, you know, Ryzen, obviously, you know, they have all the male referees, Jason Herzog, and the rest ref the women's fights as well. So I was just like, it, it really stood out because, well, apart from being the lone woman's fight, the lone woman referee on this entire card. So is she is she just the only one on, whenever there's women's fights, is she just the one woman referee, or do they have others as well? She's the only woman referee, uh, and she, I think she only refs female fights. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so Gloria Paratori, so they're in a, I think they're in a tie-up, uh, in, in a clinch. Uh, referee separates them. I have no idea why Paratori has her hands down for even, like, the amount of time that she did. Moriboto comes in, right hook, boom, she goes down. She's literally looking up at the lights with her eyes open. She was, yeah, there's no, no 10 count needed at all. Um, yeah, this will, you know, if you want to say that... I, that that Kimura was maybe uh, men's knockout of the year, female knockout, women's knockout of the year. It has to so far go to uh, Kana Morimoto just for where she put Peritori. Um, it was yeah, it was an incredibly. It's one of those knockouts where like you're wondering like is she dead? That's like that was how scary it was. Um, so what do you, what what would be next for uh, Kana at this point? Is there anything that what what is the women's division like in K one at this point? It's really odd because uh you know basically the women's division in K one is three or four names that K one uses frequently and they know that they can beat each other. So 
there's Kana, Yosefine Knotson, uh, Melanie Hellhess, and basically those three, plus maybe a couple of others like Morales, they call in at times, uh, and then, you know, it's sort of like a round robin. Sometimes you beat me, sometimes I beat you. Uh, and they don't really have the depth, so to speak, to build a full-blown division out of it. Um, they, even the Grand Prix they did previously was only a four-person Grand Prix. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think they really want to make the female fire star thing happen because, you know, they saw how much traction Ryzen got with Reyna. Uh, but uh, it, you don't know, it's not like the WMMA um, divisions where you have like a competitive pool that's been, you know, growing for like five years, right? So we'll see what they can do with Kana. Um, She's a really tough competitor. Uh, she's gone around, and I think that they were trying to spark some sort of rivalry between her and Mexican or something, but uh, I don't think that's happened yet. So basically it sounds like Ryzen uh, has, you know, just by default having Reyna, has the number one, uh, I guess, number one name in, in women's kickboxing at this point. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, uh, if they can do a Kana versus Reina fight, that would be cool. Um, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but hmm. uh, yeah, they tried to get uh, Mio, who's this, uh, who's supposed to be the second Reina out of shoot boxing. She was this young girl that was supposed to be their next star, uh, but I think they had contract issues with how they were trying to headhunt her. So, you know, Kana's sort of lacking a big name to go after at this point. Gotcha. And is it this is the is this the only division that K one has in women's or there does it happen? Do the women do they like do like one fifteen? Do they like switch weights or like what, anything else about the weight divisions? There's a uh, another weight division that's taking place. I think like five kilograms smaller than this in the crush leagues, uh, but they don't bring it up to the K one cards because uh, that's even smaller pool competition there. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, what, let's move on to the next fight, Christian. Uh, we can finally talk about the fighter who shaved his head um, because of the decision. I really want to talk about that. Let's do it. Let's do it. 121-pound super fight. The second-to-last super fight of the evening, by the way. That's K-1 bantamweight champion Yoshiki Taike. Yoshiki Taike. Dancium Ayodaya. Fight Jim via unanimous decision. All three judges court the fight 3029. Take, the fighter from Madachi, Tokyo, Japan, representing Powerland Dream, improved to 23 and 2 with a 21 fight win streak. Ayataya, on the other hand, who needs to have this eligibility check, <laughs> I mean, the dude's only 17 years old, by the way, drops to 76, 24, and 3. Now, Andrew, you can talk about how he shaved, how Taike shaves his head. Yes. Yeah, so, first, what are your thoughts about Ayatai at 17 years old taking up all these fights? Is he going to come back potentially? Oh, my God. I don't know. <laughs> Again, these 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 Thai fighters, I just don't know how they do it, how they have – they're 17, and they already have had, like, 100 fights. It just make I just can't – I know why, but I just – I can't believe that, like, it's an actual – it's an actual tangible number that they've actually fought in these numbers. This is, you know, you have fighters who, who you, you have Ben Askren who's retiring. 
I know that MMA is a little bit different, and he did wrestling, but he's he retired after, I don't know, what was it, like around 20-ish fights, and you have these TIE fighters who are kicking each other's in the shin, oh, and this is their 100th fight, and they're 17 years old. I just can't believe it. It just, it, it boggles my mind every time. Um, so, well, yes. Quite honest, I don't know how they do it in Thailand, but as soon as you're able to walk, you're able to fight over there. Bro. Yeah, and with, <laughs> with all the the things where they practice like kicking trees to break to build up their shin bones, I just it it it, it baffles my mind. Um, but we gotta talk about Takei, uh, Karev. So he got a decision win, but this is not the the way he wanted to win. Uh, was this something that he said that he was gonna do if he had not gone to finish? Nah, he didn't make a promise, but basically the background of this fight is that Takei is a guy that K1 is trying to groom to be Takeru's successor. And he does a really good job of melting guys unless they're tied. So he had this fight against a guy called uh, Yoproden, uh, maybe like two, maybe like a year ago. Um, and then that was a decision, uh, an extra round decision that he won. Uh, and then for his last fight, he fought a guy called Surianlek. He dropped him, I think, like three-ish times or something, but he wasn't able to finish him. And basically, when they were making this match and they were promoting him with the VTRs and what have you, they were making this whole story about, hey, wow, Takei, you failed to knock out two Thai guys in a row. I bet you can't knock this one out either. And then, you know, he was supposed to get the KO win here, but he couldn't, so... Yeah, this is sort of like a worst-case scenario for you now. So, apparently, so Thai guys apparently are his Achilles heel. He just cannot finish them for whatever reason, no matter how yeah. close. I mean, uh, it has to do with a lot of things, I think. It's because uh, Takei moves in a really odd style, um, and he has a great timing jumping in and landing combos at you that he has no uh, you know, business landing on anyone. But if you're able to neutralize him with kicks and you're able to get him down to a war of attrition, you know, sometimes he just fades in the later rounds. So I guess Thai guys can pull that off a lot easier than some of the Japanese competition he's been facing. And so at the uh, post-fight press conference, is that where he shaved his head? He didn't shave his head at the conference, but he came in with a shaved head, uh, you know, as a sign of regret and uh, apology. He has a really interesting... Um, lifestyle behind him like he lives out of the gym he's fighting in uh his coach is also like his adopted father and he basically lives in this small room alongside another k1 champion and this other uh guy from the same gym and you know they all we'll talk about that other k1 champion in a few short minutes <laughs> yeah so he's sort of like a uh it's a really Spartan lifestyle, and I guess he just has to uh, uh, make a show out of it. So, what about uh, Don Siam? Will he will he be back uh, to uh, fighting K one? You think at some point? You know, it's hard to say because um, even though he survived the fight, it's not like he made a huge impression in terms of really going for the kill. Like his last opponent, Surianlek. He was like lunging at Takei like he was a zombie and, you know, people were really afraid he might actually get the KO. So they brought him back and they're using him for a lot of things. And I don't know if K1 has the appetite to call back another time that division uh, if he's not as aggressive. 
Do you think that the K one's is gonna feed uh Thai guys to to K until he knocks out one? I don't know. Maybe they learned his le uh their lesson, but uh you know they really want to put Takei over, right? Like you don't know how long Takei has left in him, so uh they're gonna find ways to try to promote him. I also want to mention that during this fight, I didn't write down the round. Um, I never saw this before. So uh, Takei accidentally knocked. It looked like he knocked out uh, uh, Dai Sam's cop. Uh, like it, uh, it was an accidental groin shot, but the way that it happened, it looked like he it knocked his cup out of orbit or whatever. And they stopped the fight for three or four minutes. And I was trying to figure out like what is going on. And it turns out, I and I I figured out. Oh, they have to send someone to like actually like go into his pants to like put the cup back in there. That's what happened, I believe, right? Yeah, that happens. Okay. Uh, I never saw that. Come to think of it, that's one experience no man wants to Sorry, Craig. I mean, come to think of it, that's one experience no man wants to take. <laughs> sorry, Craig. What did you say before? Oh, me? Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, things happen in kickboxing. Okay. Once uh, mm -hmm. Yuta Kubo landed a spitting uh, back kick on Nori right in his nards. In the final of a glory tournament, and broke his cup in half, and they just had to scramble to try to find another cup. No, oh, that's funny. Again, yeah. that is no experience a man wants to take, and the fact that it happened under the watch of the glory kickboxing promotion, I'm surprised that they even continue to do another event in Japan after that. <laughs> oh, they withdrew from Japan a long time ago. It's sad. Well, uh, Christian, we gotta talk about the next fight because this wound up being my favorite match of the entire card, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about this fight, Karev. Uh, Christian, go ahead and uh, talk about this. Uh, read us the the. Uh, oh my God, I'm blanking out. Hey, in event, well, actually, the last title fight of the evening, a 198 pound clash. For the K1 Super Cruiserweight Championship of the World, as Iranian Sima Karimian not well defeated Rio Aitaka via unanimous decision. Karimian, who fights out of the same fight camp as Takei, Power of Dream, Adachi Tokyo, Japan, improves to 10 and 1 overall and retains his K1 Super Cruiserweight Championship of the World, while Aitaka who's 5'10 and 198 pounds, so he's athletic for nothing, not really, <laughs> drops to 22 and 7 overall. Now, y'all talk about Caribbean and Taikei training together. I mean, did you think that, you know, this fight kind of rubbed off on, I mean, that the energy from Taikei rubbed off on Cena a bit just to get into this fight? And about this fight. Any takeaways from it? After you, Karev. Uh, my takeaway is that, you know, Cruiserweight is the best division, and they should just fire Takeru and buy, like, 20 more 200-pound chubby Japanese guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did you think of this fight? Because this, like I said, this was my favorite fight of the card. I, the first round, it looked like Itaka was going to knock out uh, Cena. Uh, but he managed to survive and survive the round. And in the second round, out of nowhere, he gets this. Um, Cena does this this spinning back, spinning forearm back fist, whatever it was, 
and connects with Itaka and knocks him down. And I didn't even think that Cena thought they would even connect because I thought it looked like <laughs> Itaka blocked it with his hand. But apparently, it was it was there was enough power behind it to actually knock him down. What did you think about the this this back and forth fights in in the first and second round? I honestly thought it was like really touching almost. Like it was like an emotional moment watching that fight. Like I don't know if you guys caught that uh, Ryzen fight with like uh, Bob Sapp and Bakugo. Yes. Yes. Oh, no, Arashi. Yes. Uh, the uh, sumo wrestler. And like it's like, you know, Bob Sapp realizing that he can fight and just sort of coming back from a point of darkness. Uh, it was really like uh, you're talking about the shoot boxing bout between him and Akebono, right? No, I'm talking about the uh, fight he had with the Egyptian sumo guy, uh, Usuno Rashi. Kintaro, right? We seen yeah. that. It was sort of like that because, like you know, um, I don't know if you guys caught the first fight, but uh, Sina Karimian fought uh, Aitaka before, and. Going into that fight, Cena was just this like two meter tall colossus and nobody could really touch. So people, you know, were just like flailing against him. And then Aitaka was the first guy to find his chin and he basically laid him out, Mighty Mo versus Harman Toy Style, made Cena go to sleep and face plant and everything. So it seemed like the first round entirely, like Cena was sort of like, you know, scared of Aitaka's power and being a lot more cautious than he was in the first fight. But then after he gets knocked down, he sort of, like, found his courage and actually, like, started fighting back, uh, made it a lot more rangy, started using his knees, you know, went for that spinning back fist. And, you know, like, it was sort of, uh, it was a nice character arc for him, I think. Yeah, because awesome. Cena, like you said, he's six foot seven, by the way, and uh, Itaka is five foot ten. Going for a spinning back fist when you're that tall, you just, I just kind of think that just by measurement you're not going to connect with it just because you're just so long in your range you're just bound to miss but he somehow connected with that and that was the the turning point of this entire fight and Itaka just could not recover from that from that match uh from that uh hit and so uh I gotta ask uh Karev, do you think they do a third match a, a rubber match between these two I mean they have to right um I think they what they might do actually is uh the other guy in this division is uh, Kato Kisaki. You might have seen him not uh, in Bellator. He would beat Joe Schilling once in the Japanese Musketeer. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's been in K1. He fought Cena and he lost. And then he's sort of floating around the division. So I think they might do him versus Aitaka next, which would be a fun one. You know, two guys clubbing each other. Gotcha. And now, uh, now that Cena, he trains in Japan now, probably we get to see a lot more of him on future K1 shows? Yeah. Uh, you know, it should make it easier well, with the uh, virus stuff going on and all. But uh, I imagine, you know, it's hard for me to imagine they have a ready opponent for him. They'll probably go to another league and try to scout out a new face for him to fight. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about the the, the uh, that division, 205, Super Cruiserweight, whatever they, they've officially called. It, it, it seems like that division seems to be very barren in K1. They, you know, It's kind of like the polar opposite of how the old K1 was, where it was all heavyweights, bigger guys. Now this K1 is about smaller guys, uh, lightweights, uh, featherweights, bandweights, and whatever the respective uh, name for those weight divisions are. What Are they just... Is it just hard to find those types of fighters in Japan uh, at that weight class to for a division like that? 
Yeah, basically. Um, so, you know, the thing with Kale in Japan is that it's primarily a showcase for Japanese fighters, and they don't really you know, spend their money on trying to get top-ranked uh, foreign fighters unless, you know, they're good opponents uh, for whatever star they're building up. So I think the there's a historical quirk behind K1 doing its uh, heavyweight and cruiserweight divisions, and probably they pulled the trigger maybe two, three years too early. They had a guy called uh, Uehara that was, you know, a decent cruiserweight. He used to be on the old K1 shows. He used to be on Glory. They thought they could build a division now for him, uh, but he couldn't quite make it, and he retired, and they're just left with a heavyweight and a cruiserweight division that they can't quite fill yet. They maybe have like two, three Japanese guys at cruiserweight and basically no one at heavyweight. So, you know, they're still trying to do events and uh, to try to build out those divisions, but it's going to be a really long build-out for them. Mm-hmm. I gotcha, I gotcha. Um, uh, so with that being said, let us move on to the co-main. Well, actually, surprisingly to me, was the co-main of this show. And I'll pass that off to you, Christian. Okay, the co-main event, the last super fight of the evening, the 132-pound clash, as Takeru Sagawa, otherwise known as the fighter that Tenshin Nasukawa is ducking, (laughs) (laughs) knocked out Pechdom Pechindi Academy, a.k.a. Pechdom Pechkiat Pech, in 49 seconds of round number two via TKO. For Sagawa, or just Takaru, he improves to 39-1, and retaining, or actually, seeing the fact that the K-1 featherweight title was not on the line, he is still unbeaten in his last 20 or 30-some-odd fights after starting his career 5-1. and one. As far as Petchdom goes, he just had a boxing bout, his boxing debut, no less than three weeks before this fight happened. And the former I mean the former one FC flyweight kickboxing world champion drops to an unbelievable 92, 47, and two. Jesus so it's Christ. pretty obvious where his priorities lie, but as far as Takaru goes, will there ever be a fight between him and Tenshin Nasukawa? And will it ever happen at the Tokyo Dome as advertised? Yeah, one quick thing. Uh, I think you mentioned Petsdam was a one cha- uh, champion. That's actually a different Petsdam. Uh, that one is uh, the one that comes out to Baby Shark. This guy is a different guy that got his uh, start on uh, BBTV Stadium uh, events. Uh, so last-minute replacement. Still a game fighter, but a different fighter. My apologies, <laughs> but still, will we ever see Takeru versus Tension? Is that the thing? I gotta ask. Um, I think all signs point to no. <laughs> You're gonna make us I cry. Think, uh, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense for anyone that's trying to put that fight together, to be frank with you. Well, and the only person that really wants it at this point is Takeru and the fans. Well, you know, it's funny that you brought that up. I know that Tension on one of his uh, Instagram live things, I think, was directly asked about that. And he said, nope, not interested anymore. Um, nope. And um, so, but what about, okay, so currently right now, I, what's, you know, given the context of coronavirus and what it might, you know, cancel the Olympics, all these shows that are being canceled, 
Do you think Oh, that... actually, not past the Olympics. It's moving the Olympics up a year. Okay, yeah, but nonetheless, you know, taking away that big sport for for Japan and Tokyo, and Tokyo itself. Do you think that perhaps that that coronavirus with with all the changes and po- po- cancellations, postponements and all the other uh, sports that have gone on in Japan that if that it might just happen? I mean, well, given that there's nothing else, can this fight potentially happen more likely this year, you think? Or is it still a no? Karen? If it ever happens, it's going to happen this year. Um, you know, it's funny. There are a lot of conspiracy theorists out there that knew that, you know, Takeru's opponent, original opponent on this card, was going to get, uh, you know, corona blocked. And we're, sp- uh, we're spreading theories that they're going to have tension jump in at the last moment. Adam is the greatest fighter in the world. You know, everyone respects the ISJA strat. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, um, that was, I think right now there's a lot of people who are responding to Takeru's ask to put that fight together. Like, the original founder of K1 actually tweeted after this fight saying they needed to get this done. Uh, Masada was on commentary saying that they just, you know, he just wishes they would get the fight done and, you know, satisfy Takeru. I think even Tension's sort of amiable to it. He was uh, live tweeting the response to this as well. Um, and, you know, Tension's sort of playing, like, hard to get, like, not hard to get, but he's playing mind games at this point because he was the one that asked for the fight first, and then uh, he kept asking for it, but it didn't happen, and he sort of was, like, giving up, and he was like, oh, I don't really care if it happens or not. But, you know, every time that Takeru is on the news, he'll also perk up and be like, well, you know, like, I want to make sure the right things happens between uh, Takeru and myself. So I think he's amenable to the fight. And a lot of people are rallying behind this idea of holding the uh, kickboxing Olympics, so to speak, in 2020 uh, to fill the gap where the Tokyo Olympics used to be. The only thing is, really, if you are the owners of K1, it makes absolutely no sense at all to do a fight like this uh, or to give you know, equal billing and do co-promotions with a different uh, promoter. It's sort of like how, you know, no matter how big Fedor was back in 2010, uh, the UFC was never going to co-promote with him, you know. It's basically that type of uh, atmosphere right now. So either Takeru needs to quit K1, and not just quit K1, but not fight for a year to get off the contract, to go to a different ring and then promote something that's not K1, or Tension has to enter into an exclusive contract uh, to fight under K1. And, you know, I just think both of those options are such an anathema to how these two think about things that it's probably not going to get done. So I initially, so after the Floyd fight, you know, it sounded like Tension wanted to almost leave Japan to do kickboxing, well, not kickboxing, uh, boxing in America. Uh- um, and it sounded like he had, you know, you know, he, he got the, he got the taste of, of that one, of that 15 minutes of fame and he wanted more. And, but with the way that the world is now, and clearly, you know, no international fights, uh, uh, if him, if his goal is to come to America and do boxing, it ain't going to happen n- now at this point. So I'm just wondering, is that, is it maybe the only big fight that Tension can do right now? Because I, what, he was supposed to do the Rise Grand Prix, which I think every, uh, uh, no, no, he was supposed to fight in Rise, but 
that fight, you know, that entire car was canceled, and probably whoever would have won that, he would probably beat. Uh, Ryzen is probably gave him his toughest opponent to date in Rui Ibada, um, and and he wiped the floor with Ibada. So there's really nothing else for Tension to do right now in the fight game. So is it is it at all feasible that because there's nothing else to do that a fight it, it kind of just has to happen by process of elimination for this year for like a big sporting event in Japan? Even with all the all the all the you know politics between K one and all that and Ryzen Rise all that stuff, I don't think so, man. I mean, uh, I think right now Kenshin uh, is still saying he wants to fight abroad at least once this year, and I think the implication is that either he might explore something with Bellator or switch over to one, mm-hmm. uh, go off to one. And, you know, one's been flirting with him for a while now, and there's a. They have a really strong division at 57.5 kgs to 60-ish kgs. You know, they have Rob Dang, who uh, they're still, Tension still wants a rematch with. They also have a bunch of other guys like Haggerty and Mamuni there. That'll be fun competitive matchups for him. Uh, you have a rematch with Rod Tong. Yeah. Well, they were supposed to, they, weren't they supposed to face each other in the G- Grand Prix last year? But then Rod Tong got pulled? Yeah. Uh, I forget whether they were facing off against each other, but Rotang got pulled, yeah. Okay, but regardless, that's probably what everybody was figuring was Rotang and Tenshin were going to were going to clash again. Uh, and yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know, who, I think, was it one, I think one probably pulled him out, I believe. Um, yep. So, I think what happened, actually, is that Rise got ahead of themselves and announced a fight going down. But they didn't confirm it with Rotting. Uh, Rotting denied that the fight was happening soon after, I think. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, I just want to also, uh, uh, Takaru gave a great speech at the end. He was crying, tears were flowing down his face. He said, I was told not to say this tonight, but because these are the times we live in now, I want to surpass organizations and bring this country together and put on a big event that gives people power, not bound to just K1. Combat sports is the greatest. Was this speech uh, as emotional as it reads uh, translated, Karev? Oh, it was a lot more emotional. I mean, like, uh, it's obvious that he's going through a lot of stuff. Like, he revealed after the fight that he got uh, partial deafness like a week before this fight, uh, and he blamed down the stress. Um, and, you know, there's just like a whole bunch of things weighing down on it, right? Like, this fight, uh, the fight with tension not happening, him being in the later stages of the career any fallout that they might see from this event going down. And, uh, you know, he's been pretty clear from the start that he just wants to hold the kickboxing Olympics and, you know, land 2020 with the biggest card uh, since the days when he was uh, a kid watching K1 TV. You know, he basically, on uh, the first K-Festa card that went down like two years ago, he made a promise to the audience that, you know, his legacy in his fight sport was going to be uh, the fact that he's going to bring K1 back to TV, and he just hasn't been able to do that yet. And the best card that he has is to pull off a cross-promotional event and, you know, pull guys into the Tokyo Dome. So it's something that he's been chasing after for a long time. I think the other nuance is that before, when he wins fights, he used to say K1 is the greatest, like, to, you know, end his fights, end uh, his speeches. But now he's uh, specifically saying combat sports is the greatest. And, you know, a lot of people are interpreting that that's sort of like a 
a uh, little protest on his part, right? And it's, it's fairly innocuous, but, you know, he's making it very clear that he's unhappy and that he just wants a big fight. So I just want to just bring it up again because you brought up a great point. Uh, K1 is not on terrestrial television. It's on Abima TV, which... Wh where does Abima TV stand in terms of Japanese television? It's actually... Uh... So it's this streaming site that popped up over the last three years or something, and K1 was one of the first uh, content providers to jump on this ship. It's actually really big right now. I think there are past 15 million installs or something in a country of 120 million people, mm. 30 million people. So it's really big. Um, a lot of people are watching it. Uh, a lot of big major TV stars that move entirely on the Vena. And uh, because K1 was one of the first organizations on there, and they, you know, basically made the fighting sports channel. Uh, you know, they've been on a really good streak in terms of just getting media coverage and pulling new people into the sport. Well, um, versus Ryzen, which has the Fuji TV deal, they're also on Sky Perfect, Gal. Um, they were on Fight TV. Have the advantage of being shown outside of Japan, being on Fight TV. Which you know, I don't know where that stands right now, but. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious to know where when K when you say that K1 doesn't want to co-promote, why does wouldn't it be in their best interest considering where they are and where, versus where Ryzen is to co-promote that kickboxing match just because they they're not on regular uh, or just uh, terrestrial television? You know, I think that was a thought behind them when they were previously working with Ryzen back in 2015. So you know. Takeru has a fight in Ryzen back in, like, 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, but what happened since then is that uh, Abema got kicked off in 2016, I think. And, you know, they started getting the actual audience uh, themselves. And basically the people that watch K1 don't watch other types of fighting sports in Japan. Almost all of them. They're basically like this sliver of K1 fans that are, you know, following it as its own niche thing there. And those people aren't necessarily going to be watching other kickboxing events or even uh, fight events in general. And so that's one thing. Like their audiences don't necessarily overlap as much as you think. The other thing is that if you were to envision co-promotion, it's not going to be with K1 and Ryzen, probably. It's going to be with K1 and Rise, mm -hmm. uh, which is a kickboxing organization that tension fights out of. And then, you know, K1 is very clear that they are the end-all, be-all of kickboxing. That is not true by any means. But they basically have this closed world. You know, they're like the apple of the kickboxing world. They don't play with anyone. They're just like this weird thing that happens in the corner somewhere. And a lot of people like them. Uh, and they don't work together with anyone else because they see it as elevating people to their level. And whereas they are supposed to be feeder leagues. I see, I see. So basically what you're saying is what K1 has to do is have Takaru versus Leona, Leona knock out Takaru, and then Leona just becomes the, the face of K1 at this point. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why Leona is going to be the hero that nobody asked for. So then do we get five years of Leona calling out tension and, and, and we, we kind of the circle repeats itself all over again? I guess, but you know, even if that thing happens, right? Uh, K1 has these crazy contracts, and they're basically refreshing every time you take a fight there. So if Takeru says he wants to quit K1 today, he has to wait anywhere between 
12, between a year to 18 months to maybe even three years uh, for him to be able to take fights outside of the organization. So, you know, it'll be the same with Leona. Um, and before we go on to the main event, the last question I have is, were you, was, I know the last, the main event was obviously the 154 pound title, uh, tournament final, but Takaru not being the main event, was that, I don't know, I just always, whenever I see Takaru on a K1 show, I always think, oh, he's in the main event, he's in the main event, even though this was not a title fight, was that at all surprising, or was, you know, just, you know, not, am I overthinking this? I think he was supposed to be the main event for this. And I think they promised him it, uh, but when they had to cancel the original fight he had against Adam, and that didn't, it was no longer a title fight, they, they did the UFC thing of saying, okay, only title fights can be main carters. I so see. they brought up the uh, tournament final. Because it would have been a great way to finish the show with the way that he just gave that speech at the end. I think it would have been a great, just a great way to cap off, not that, you know, uh, you know, Kimura winning, you know, and talking Japanese would be bad, but I just what was translated for what Takaru said, I think that would have been the perfect way to just encapsulate that entire show. That's just me personally. Um, but with that, Christian, speaking of the main event, let's move on to it. Yeah, let's move on to it because it didn't really last too long in the 154-pound Grand Prix Tournament Finals. Philip Minoru Kimura, TKO... Romy Wajima in the first round. One minute, ten seconds to become the K1 154-pound or 70-and-a-half-kilo Grand Prix tournament winner. Kimura improves to 35-9-1. He's currently on a 12-fight winning streak. And he's 14-3 since taking that beating from Charles Crazy Horse Bennett. Wajima falls to 12 and 4 overall as a kickboxer while going 2 and 1 on the night. And Kimura's 4 minute and 36 second run through the tournament is the fastest run K1 history, both in the modern era and in the old era. But when you think about Philip Minoru Kimura, obviously we keep mentioning that one time he fought an MMA. Where he got his ass kicked by obviously one of the most craziest individuals in professional combat sports history, and Charles Felony Bennett, aka Crazy was. But obviously, Kimura has shown more than just that. So I have to add, even though he is a former K1, I mean, even though he's a former Crush World Champion, a former Maja Pippen Super Lightweight Champion, what do you think that? I mean, what do you think Kimura's future holds? I mean, does he potentially get another K-1 world title opportunity? Or is he just going to have to wait out a little bit? Yeah, you know, um, now he is a champion since he won the Grand Prix. And it's a big moment for him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, The way K-1 Grand Prix work is in, like, rising Grand Prix. You have the Grand Prix title of the tournaments, and those are actually the main uh, titles. Uh, but basically, now that he's basically been this guy that's on the fringes for four or five years, he was on the very first K-1 car that I went to, uh, back in uh, K-1 Japan car that I went to, back in 2014, uh, when they kicked off this whole thing. And they had this huge, crazy tournament there 
with guys like Kubo in it and like Geo Sakurek and Yamazaki in it. And Kimura was this tossed uh, trash talking brat, basically, that was calling everyone scum and saying he was going to knock everyone out. And then in the very first round of the tournament, he gets bodied by Soda, who is this, you know, random guy that nobody gave a hope of anymore, uh, to. And then, you know, people were expecting that, you know, he just fades away from that. But then, since then, he just found ways to, like, uh, actually get into the limelight, pull up some crazy KOs, go on a couple of streaks, get a t- chance to challenge for the title, get absolutely shut down and destroyed, go off into a career tumble where he loses to uh, Felony Bennett in, like, seven seconds, gets knocked out by, like, three, four other guys. And then, you know, he just sort of just found himself, in the, and he's on a killing streak right now. And he's really calmed down a lot, I think. Um, he's not talking nearly as much trash as he once was. Uh, but he does recognize that he sort of was supposed to become a star, but he's sort of been a sideshow. And even though he's had the charisma to pull off a bigger role, uh, this is the first time he's actually had the title to actually earn that type of main event caliber status for him. So we'll see. It could be he loses to some other guy in like six seconds, or he might actually, you know, really pull off a long dominant reign and become a long running star for them. But, you know, I'm rooting for him, um, even though I wasn't five, six years ago. Um, it should be a good one to watch going forward. So I'm curious. And, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, um, when you say that, that K1 wants a Japanese champion to represent the organization, does he count as being Japanese kind of by proxy since he does live and train and looks like he speaks fluent Japanese as well? Yeah, dude. I mean, like, he's originally from Curitiba, Pahana, Brazil. Mm. Sorry, Crab, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, they promote him as Brazilian a lot of times, but he is Japanese for all intents and purposes. Um, He's even had the opponents come up to him and say, hey, you're not a Philip. You're just a Kimura. Uh, <laughs> I've seen him around in town in Tokyo. And he's just like this friendly neighborhood guy that's hanging out at bars and stuff. Uh, so he's basically Japanese. Gotcha. And so what about Wajima? What happens to him? He made it to the finals but did not survive. So what, what, what does K1 do with somebody who comes, you know, who loses in the finals of a tournament usually? Typically, what they do is they find another guy in that tournament that performed really well, uh, but didn't make it to the finals and make them fight each other. So probably in his case, he has to face someone like Edder uh, going forward. Um, he's actually beaten most of the Japanese guys at that weight. Uh, and unfortunately, this is his second time losing to uh, Minoru. So even though he's pretty young, uh, I don't see a rematch for him in his cards. Uh, so, you know, best of luck to him. I think they're going to try to make him prove himself more against foreign competition. And what about Kimura? Do you think, do you have anybody pegged or have an idea who might be his first challenger? So, uh, Masato really wants them to call back one of the earlier K170 KG champions. So, Chingiz Alazab or, uh, Marat Gregorian. Gregorian's not going to move from glory. Uh, I don't think Alizov is moving from Bellator kickboxing, but, you know, 
Maybe they'll just. Well, I mean, that can only be obvious because Bellator kickboxing hasn't done a damn thing in over a year. So I've heard. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Like, the guy could fight Giorgio Petrogen, but nobody knows when the fight is happening or has any way to view it live. Uh, but, you know, well, that's where he is. I just realized what about Jordan Petrogen again? Could be. Um, Pekira might move up a division. Pekira's also looking to stay in 67.5 kgs, but uh, I think that's the obvious, uh, not the obvious, that's the best fight. Uh, otherwise, they might do Noiri uh, Fukashi, who fought at 65 against Yamazaki, was saying maybe he can go up to 70. So, you know, that'll be a fun fight if that happens. Uh, yeah, a lot of options. Now, here's the thing if you were a first time viewer of K1, Never seen Kimura before. You kind of would probably take away. Oh, this guy's a killer. Nobody can defeat him. Uh, who do you think is the? Uh, going off that, who would you say would be the person that might have the the biggest chance to uh, beat Kimura? Uh, at the going at the streak that he's on right now. Well, I think with Kimura, you know, um, his weaknesses have always been the same in that he's not really that resilient. Uh, whether it's to his chin or to his body, if you can weather his early pressure and uh, you know reapply pressure, you can beat him. And Noiri and uh, Piquero didn't have any uh, difficulty in knocking him out previously. So I think if they were to get the rematch, I think Kimura's a lot better now than when uh, they fought him. But either of them would have a good chance of beating him. Maybe uh, if uh, if he uh, ever gets permission to leave the country to go into uh, Japan again, maybe Charles Felony Bennett versus Kimura in a rematch. This time kickboxing. Ah oh, man, you should not root for that. Like uh, they made him do a whole bunch of kickboxing after that fight happened, and it did not go well for Felony. <laughs> oh, for for Felony or for Kimura? Yeah, for Felony. Uh, they. Like shoe boxing called him back, called him in. He got defeated there. He went off to China and he lost there. I think he's been on a straight losing streak since he fought Kimura or something. Yeah, so, Christian, you know more about the losing streak of uh, Bennett. What, what's he at now? He definitely has been going on a losing streak. As a matter of fact, he's gone on an eleven fight losing streak since then, and he's now thirty. 41 and 2. <laughs> My God. My God. Uh, anyway, Karev, uh, I want to get your thoughts overall on the show itself. 25 fights, putting on a show in the middle of a global pandemic. Was this show as good as as the presentation was? Where, uh, and what were your favorite fights and, or finishes of the, of the show? Yeah. So, as I said... <laughs> can't say this was a good idea for K1, but honestly, I really enjoyed the card. A lot of KOs, a lot of good action. It sucks that we didn't get that, you know, one or two real barn burners that goes back and forward besides uh, the cruiserweight fight. Um, but even with that aside, like, people weren't really counting on this card because, you know, it wasn't the strongest KFS card yet, and there were a lot of cancellations, but still, I actually think it was a lot more enjoyable than the last year's presentation. And I, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, well, well, did you have a favorite fight or favorite knockout? Yeah, so uh, probably favorite fight. Uh, I shouldn't say this, but it was probably the Caribbean versus Itaka fight. Uh, 
probably also I would say that the Fukashi and Nikia fight was really good. I think Masato and Sat, uh, Sato Yoshihiro were on commentary saying that reminded them of uh, their Kawa Max days, which is really high praise. Mm. There are so many knockouts of the night. Uh, it's hard to pick one, but it's probably uh, the Kimura knockout over Eder, uh, Kana's knockout, uh, you know. I also, uh, it probably wasn't the best knockout of the night, but I'm glad uh, Takeru had a dominant win. Um, you know, it would have been too sad if uh, he got another split decision given his emotional state. Mm-hmm. Now, what about, so, do you think that K1 got um, some international eyes uh, because of this show? And you think that they, they're going to have, they'll be able to, you think that K1 will be smart and be able to capitalize it hopefully in the future with a bigger, when they have their next big show? You know, I think given how long they've been in this game but not been doing live foreign streams, uh, that's just a thing that we can't expect them to change. They're not going to do Fight TV, I'm pretty sure. Like, they haven't to this day, and they won't going forward. Uh, the best hope is that Abema TV uh, internationalizes the Fight, channel sport, uh, fight Sports channel. They've internationalized some of the other channels that they've had. And, you know, it's sort of a rights issue because they need to get the rights to broadcast different things in different locations. But uh, there's always a hope that Abema gets on its game before K1 does. Because oh, I... Um... They definitely, you know, it's, I think they definitely, and I said it before, they missed, they could have definitely gotten a lot of international fans to pay for the show if it was available legally and easily, I'll say, uh, for us over here. Um, but is, is K1 just, uh, is it, is it, I know it's a stereotype that a lot of Japanese companies miss the ball when it comes to international, uh, jumping on that international bandwagon. Do you think that this is a case that of, you know, the, the the day that they finally start to recognize that they have an international eyes on them, it will maybe just be too late by then or nobody will care? You know, I think the thing with K1 Japan is that they know what they need to do to be successful, but they're not going to do things outside of it. Mm. Like, they know that they have to work towards a certain fan base to get them to keep watching and coming back to the stadiums. So they're not going to take... Uh, risks to appeal to a fan base outside of that. And it's not just an internet, like, internet, <laughs> internationalization thing, but yeah. it's also the reason why they will never do a tension Nasukawa co-promotion fight. Because I know uh, on the Beam stream, they did have Eng- they had the, the fighter's name in English. So, I mean, they didn't have to do that. I know that's a little small thing, but that tells me that, I mean, do normally, do they, no, do they normally put the English, uh, names of the fighters uh, on their shows? They've slowly come around to doing a bit more presentation in English. Like, uh, they've started back-dubbing a lot of the fights that they've had in English commentary and posting them on YouTube. Uh, the production level is not the greatest thing in the world, but they are picking up on it. But I think, you know, coming in from the outside and watching Japanese uh, promotions, it's easy to get an overinflated sense of how much uh, international viewing can contribute to their revenues. And fundamentally, you know, given the time zone issues and the fact that you have to sell pay-per-views, uh, all the pay-per-view audiences in places in the Western Hemisphere is just going to be limited. You know, Pride thought they could sustain themselves on pay-per-view sales. They couldn't. Um, and then 
I think Ryzen is trying to shift in that direction too, but uh, it's still an open question. And I think the K1 brass is looking at the pennies that they have to uh, gather if they were to try to do more effort for overseas stuff, and they made the decision not to pursue that. So what is K1's next big show? I know there's the Crush show is supposed to happen, but that's not one of their big shows. What is the next big show that that fans and people who like uh, Japanese kickboxing can look forward to being put on? Yeah, so, you know, everything is with um, quotes in there because who yes. knows when things are popping up. But the next big show is supposed to be in uh, July. So they're going to Fukuoka, which is a city in Kyushu, which is a regional city, um, to pull off their first event there. Uh, they have a couple guys locally that I imagine they'll pull in. And then they have an Osaka event uh, for the summer season, which is going to be in uh, August 26th, uh, 27th. So that's probably going to be their next big show. And then they have a year-end show, which is probably going to be their biggest in November 15th, which is going to be in Ryogoku, Kokujikan, the Sumo Stadium. Mm. But it's uh, get... that one... Mm-hmm. Sorry? So that one is probably a Takeru event. Gotcha. And is, is it fair to say that K-Festa is kind of like uh, if they're putting it in wrestling terms, either their Wrestle Kingdom or their WrestleMania, their their Super Bowl. Basically, it's the one that's supposed to get TV broadcast, um, and they were trying to work something out for uh, this one as well. And they were supposed to play on a uh, tape delay, but that didn't. They ended up falling through, but with all the controversy, mm. so you know they're probably hoping K Festa Four can uh, get people's eyes back on the product. Gotcha, gotcha. So if anybody wants to watch this show, I mean, um, I don't know what's the best way I can say. Uh, I mean, the, the fights are on YouTube individually. I think that all the fights, if you search the right ways, and by the right ways I mean... Or if you go to youtube.com slash user slash K1 World League. Well, no, no, the K1 hasn't uploaded any of the fights. You have to find them through uh, other sources. I'm... Yep. Best way to do is just look up the Japanese names um, or the katakana kanji uh, for the fighters, because that's the best way you can fight it. There's other the Chinese website that I think most people use. Like, if you want to sit down for like ten hours straight to watch a show, by all means, do that. But most of us don't have time like that. <laughs> so uh, if you if you want to do that, and, and it's a lockdown era of. Uh, 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 that we're currently in, so maybe you do have time for that. But uh, if you just want to see the fights individually, no entrances. Actually, let me ask about that as well. Who do you think had the best entrance out of all the uh, fighters, Karev? Ah, uh, man. Um, I'm going to give it to Takiru just because they had the uh, orchestra play before their walk-ins as well, so that was cool. Uh, I do not want to give it to Yuta Kubo, who had his wife singing um but with that you know uh christian um before i pass off our social media i want to pass off to you uh karev where people can follow you reach you and follow uh everything that you that you do to help cover k1 jmma and all that stuff yeah uh for now you can follow me on twitter at at k-a-r-a-e-v underscore f-a-n uh, but uh, soon I'm looking to pick up a couple writing engagements at a couple other fight sites, so I'll let you guys know on my Twitter feed there. Um, 
besides that, though, I don't have that much to promote myself. I just hope that you, you know, you guys stick around the Japanese kickboxing product because it's a really underappreciated segment of the combat sports market, I think. And uh, hope I see you on Twitter someday. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'll say for myself, you know, this was definitely, you know, even though there was 25 fights and it, it, this show was, it felt its length, it was still a great show to watch. Um I mean, they had no competition that week, so there's nothing to really compare it to. But compared to, I think, other than maybe the Conor McGregor-Donald Cerrone fight, I didn't feel like, you know, that that card, you know, was good overall. But I felt like this was had a nice, full pace to it. You know, it did, no, there was no bad fights. There was no bad fights at all. And the fights that, that were great were great, and the, the knockouts were great. It's definitely a show to watch, especially with how barren the combat sports world now is. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully K1 will make shows somewhat accessible to the best of their ability, or BEMA, whoever, whoever's controlling those uh, switches. Hopefully they'll, we can watch them on YouTube, and then watch, watch the way, after that, watch the ways that us, sometimes us Westerners have to watch these fights. But, uh, Christian, off to you now. Okay, like I said, if you, I mean, like I said at the beginning of this show, if you want to follow us on Twitter... In addition to Kara F, and you can do so. I'm at ChrisGary92. Andrew is at Avenger1. The show podcast is we is at We Are Rising Pod, W E A R E R I Z I M P O D, all in one word. And as far as the podcast goes, you can listen to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube, but hopefully soon. We'll be getting things going so you can listen to us on all podcast providers of choice. Andrew, please, if you get the chance, please go to podbean.com so we can get this damn thing going. I think at this point, uh, Christian, uh, K1 will have a television deal in America before we get on Podbean. (laughs) Of course, of course. Right, right, right. But, (laughs) I mean, yeah. That's going to happen. Hopefully that will happen sooner than later because we all know it's going to take a while for this K-1 to get on American television before we get on and stream to the world, to the masses, so to speak. (laughs) But anyways, if you like what we're putting out, just check us out on those platforms. And be sure to follow Focus Fights. We cover prospects from all around the fighting world, the scenes of Japan, the U.S., the U.K., pretty much everywhere in the world that isn't going through quarantine hell will be emphasized. You can follow currently on Facebook and Instagram at Focus Fights. The Twitter page is currently down at the moment due to some bullshit restrictions. I don't know. But when it gets back up, you can follow on Twitter as well, because that's our best way of communicating with you, at Focus Fights. Or just search for the YouTube channel. Or just type it into your Google machine, Focus Fights, F-O-C-U-S-F-I-G-H-T-S. And in the case of the Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, that's all in one word. And as far as... The best ways to contact K1, I just mentioned one of them. You can check their YouTube channel out, K1, I mean, youtube.com slash K1 World, no, actually, youtube.com slash user slash K1 World League. They are on Instagram and Twitter at K1 WGP underscore PR. They are on Facebook at K 
at facebook.com slash k1japan and you can just check them out in Japanese on their website k-1.co slash jp but still it's been fun talking with y'all thank you Kyle F fan for joining us we hope to have you on soon for more great uh, come to think of it if it's okay with you, would you potentially like to join us when we get back to our regular operations of doing and covering MMA? Um, you know, uh, I often have trouble promising to do long-term things. Uh, I will say that that sounds like a really cool idea. Uh, and, you know, I'll probably be up to join you on a point basis. Uh, to be honest with you, you know, the late night shift of covering MMA fights uh, for Ryzen and things like that have gotten pretty brutal for me as well. So if I am on, uh, happy to hop on and be of help, but can't promise I won't miss events as they come along. Understood, understood, because when it comes to Ryzen and, you know, Japanese combat sports in general, it's a bitch to, you know, try and cover everything, but it gives everybody a bit more of an understanding, you know? Hmm. But other yeah, than that... Mm-hmm. Yep, that's fair. Right, right, right. But other than that, it's been fun talking with y'all. We are thankful that you have... We are thankful that you, the listener, have joined us for another edition of the We Are Rising podcast, and we thank y'all for listening and helping spread the word about us. You say... Try carefully, take care of yourself and others. Make sure to wash your damn hands every 20 seconds or every time you touch your face, mouth, or eyes. <laughs> and remember, as the late... No, eh, shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's hard for me to try and finish these things again without feeling tongue-tied, but still. Point of the matter is, it's been fun talking with y'all. We hope to kick it with y'all again. Not too soon, but hopefully soon enough. And as Lenny Hart always likes to say as we close out another edition. And just like that, we out this mug. Talk to y'all later.